Good morning and welcome to the Isle of Faces. This is Scraps and Scrolls and already I am being far too cheery. Let me start again. Good morning and welcome to the toughest day we've ever had here on the Isle. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. This intro music is far too cheery for the dark clouds above us today. Oh dear, yes it is Red Wedding Week, so be prepared. But before we get to the tragedy, let me say good morning from sunny yet incredibly windy England. I'm watching my back fence as I record, just like the Lannisters watch the Mudgate, that thing could come down at any second. Of course, we're hoping all of our beloved green folk and their families are remaining safe, healthy and smart out there. Thank you to those of you who are on the front lines, please do reach out if so, we'd love to give you a shout out to all our beloved key workers. And of course, thank you to all of those who are staying at home if they can. It's a tough time for everyone, and we love you all equally. Like I say, I am Sir Buckley. You are listening to Scraps and Scrolls, part 11 of Storm of Swords, and the tough one. Today is going to be a huge episode, so I warn you now, there might be some tears. But before tears, laughter, because we are now two episodes in to Sporkle Spectacular. We've completed Game of Thrones, both the opening and closing sentences, with special guests Vanessa Cole and San Rixian respectively. Episode 2 came out last Thursday with San Rixian. We had a great time recording, even if it was a very tough time answering. I hope you guys have all checked out both of those episodes and they've been able to cheer you up just a little bit. Thank you so much to those of you who have shared and especially people who've sent in their scores. It's a lot of fun to see people getting involved and interacting. We'd like more of that, please, please, please. Remember, you can do so on Twitter. I am at Sir Buckley, S-E-R Buckley. You can find me there. You can email us if you wish, Podcast at gmail.com or you can just comment on wherever you listen to the Isle of Faces. We'd love to hear from you, whichever way you choose. Now, as for this week, Sporkle Spectacular returns. Tuesday for patrons, Thursday for the general public and it's time to take on a clash of kings, starting, of course, with the opening sentences. And I'm very happy to tell you that our special guest this week will be None other than Lauren, aka Shakes of Thrones, our very own Isle of Faces alumni. In fact, she was our last guest episode last summer. We all love Lauren. She's a blast to record with. It's really fun. She knows her stuff, obviously, as any of you who follow her on Twitter will know. And I think you are all going to have a lot of fun listening to that one. So please keep it in mind this week. And again, please share those episodes when they come out. Please have a go and share your scores. It's a lot of fun. We'd love to hear from you. And if you're going to look at Sporkle, there are heaps and heaps of A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones quizzes to keep you through this tough time, so I heartily recommend it. And not just those two, literally anything you can think about. Now, in terms of other episodes, or in terms of foolishness perhaps, I keep having this hankering to add some more. I want to record more and more for you guys, even though it is a tough time this week and I'll get teary. It's fun. I like recording. I like being able to interact with you. I want to give more content for the Isle of Faces. So, normally, when I'm out on my dog walks, I'm thinking, what else can we do? How else can we support our fandom and boost our fandom and give you guys something to listen to? There's a lot of ideas, but I'd love to know what you guys think. Should we do a mailbag episode? Should we do like a, a question and answers episode? Should we do a top 10 episode? A fantasy draft? There are loads of things to consider. The possibilities are endless. So let us know what you would want to see, any ideas of your own, and hopefully we can get the Isle of Faces with yet more episodes, more bonus content, more patron-only episodes, etc, etc, etc. I'm willing to talk about anything. We can go off fandom. We can talk Marvel. We can talk sitcoms. I don't mind. I'm pretty nerdy i'm happily talk about anything give me some zelda video games to talk about oh yeah i'll take you through them don't worry but really whatever you guys want to hear about whether it's about song of ice and fire or anything else we'd just like to churn out some more stuff for the other faces yeah. now, i think that's enough of an intro i think these dark clouds are gathering 
we had best get to them. We will have our mid-roll later on, but for now, let's get down to business. Everybody hold hands, or close to hold hands in this current climate. You know what I mean. Mentally, let's hug each other. So here we are, the group of chapters we have known we would eventually come to way back when we started this reread project. I suggested we just paper over them and miss out this week, as if these chapters never existed, but unfortunately I was outvoted. We have to include them, apparently. Yes, there are six chapters to look at today, but really, there is one event. Four of those chapters are directly related to the event itself, we are actually there. Five if you want to include Tyrion, as he has a kind of round-up epilogue at the end. But really, we know what we're here for. Catelyn Seven, the most infamous, beautifully haunting, absolutely tragically heartbreaking chapter of any work ever. I don't think that's hyperbole, to be honest with you. The Red Wedding is one of those events that has leapt out of the work it is a part of to become its own famous entity. It nearly broke the internet back in 2013, and back then I knew absolutely nothing of the show or Song of Ice and Fire, and yet I still remember everyone absolutely freaking out for a good number of weeks, and with good reason. The only other event comparable in the series is Ned's death. It's shocking, it's devastating, it is George at the absolute peak of his powers in terms of subverting expectations and deconstructing what we would consider norms in the story. Everything we once assumed, so carefully after the tragedy of Ned, is ripped from us. The righteous son doesn't gain vengeance over his father's killers. The enlightened North doesn't win the war. The mother can't protect her son. And through this is a cataclysm that nearly affects all corners of Westeros in one way or another. In truth, it is about the end, kind of, of the tragedy of Catelyn Stark. Even if you are indifferent to her, this is a highly, highly charged emotional chapter. And if you do happen to be like me, where she is your favourite character in the whole series... Yes, it does often result in waterworks, so just watch out for that. Before we begin, a reminder of our specific chapters. We have John 6, where he returns to Castle Black. We have Catelyn 6, where Catelyn and Rob arrive at the Twins. We have Aya 10, where she is approaching the Twins. We have Catelyn 7. I don't think I need a description here. We have Aya 11, after the fact, very short chapter. And finally, Tyrion 6, where we have a small council meeting and we round up what's just happened. So let's begin today with our one trip to the north, our one non-Red Wedding chapter, John 6. There's so much to come and discuss in this week's chapters. Sorry, John, you're not getting top billing today, but while we're here, let's try and give you your due before we move on to the truly good stuff. Okay, yes, this isn't a Red Wedding level chapter, but it is pretty huge in John's story. He returns to the wall, he returns to the home he left so long ago, and has been pretending to have betrayed for months on end, and on top of that, he finally hears the lies about Winterfell's demise. Well, lies and truth, they're both in there. So there's more than one person having their world shattered today. If last time was the end of Jon's wildling storyline, then today is his second introduction to Castle Black. And like so much else since the Game of Thrones, it is a much-changed place. Here's our first quote for the chapter. Soon the wall. He pictured his friends drinking mulled wine in the common hall. Hobbled we of his kettles. Donal Noy at his forge. Maester Aemon in his rooms beneath the rookery. And the old bear? Sam, Gren, Dolores Ed, Dywin with his wooden teeth? Don could only pray that some had escaped the fist. My favourite part of this chapter opening is that John's thoughts so closely mirror Sam's for our previous episode. Like best buddy Tarly, John pictures Castle Black and imagines the warmth of the common hall and all his friends being there. Of course, the difference is, John only fears the results of the fist, he doesn't actually know the truth yet, and he has no clue about the mutiny, of course. Having said that, of the people we pictures, only Dior has actually died so far, so it's a pretty good guess from John there. Sam and John are both using their friends as something to focus on, something to keep them going, a kind of guiding star. Not just their friends, but the wall itself. But there's other comparisons too. Sam had the mutineers or the whites on his tail. John worries about the wildlings coming after him. 
Sam has much worse weather elements to deal with, while John is actively wounded and bleeding out. They've both got plenty to warn the Night's Watch about. They both need to get back there if they're going to survive. It's a great symmetry between these two besties. And for John, he winds up on the King's Road heading north, just like he did when he first joined up. Back then he was just chilling, being a bit of a moody teen with Tyrion. Now he's a man grown, he's war-torn, and he has the weight of the Seven Kingdoms on his shoulders. The difference truly comes when we look at the wildling women. Sam still has his lady love with him, whereas Jon has abandoned his for the greater good, and now that he's had some time to think about the situation, he's beginning to let his inner thoughts argue with themselves. Now he can actually see Egret as both the woman he loves and a danger to the Seven Kingdoms. But because he's Jon, and guilt always comes first, he relates it more to his abandonment and loyalties rather than the end result with his wrong to love her, wrong to leave her line. In the same paragraph, he begins to compare it to Ned's own indiscretions prior to Lady Catelyn, which is such a George move seeing as the potential of Ned's supposedly secret lover was a hot topic back in our last collection of chapters. Before you know it, we're in Molestown. It's only our second time actually visiting the little village, and the last time was also on a desperate nighttime ride from Jon, right back towards the ending of A Game of Thrones. He didn't even stop then, so at least he takes a quick pit stop here, switch out his horse, get the word out about the wildlings, and whistle-stop though it might be, Molestown is going to play a semi-important role in Jon's dance arc, so it is important that it gets brought up here. And just like that, we're home. And I think as he's got to my note on the meta of Castle Black being a setting that we've kind of kept away from from an entire book and nearly two-thirds of this one, either way, we're back now. And we're back to the place where it's the focus of Jon's greatest growth that he's been fixated on the whole time he's been away and the place he's going to stay until his quote-unquote death. And because we've been away for so long, George gives us an update on how the place is faring, and it's it's not great. Here's a quote. No sentries challenged him as he rode past the outbuildings. No one came forth to bar his way. Castle Black seemed as much of ruin as Greyguard. The point of this paragraph is firstly to maybe inject some worry into the reader that John is too late, or something bad has already happened, but even past that, George is very blatantly displaying what John described in his last chapter about Castle Black's defences, in that they have none. John rides straight up and straight in the middle of the night with zero hindrance. Craster's keep was better guarded than this. What the hell would happen if Sturr and his wildlings had come upon them at this moment? As John said before, it'd be red slaughter. All of it goes to prove John right and increases that overall urgency. On top of that, it's a nice mark of George's detailed writing to remind us that Castle Black hasn't been frozen in time since we left it at the opening of Clash of Kings. There's an effect from so many men and half the leadership being gone on the ranging. Not only are the defences lacklustre, but everything has fallen into disrepair. The place is a mess, there's weeds in the yard, again because of so few men and that overall state of the Night's Watch. And as much as this is extra detail, it also reminds us of the dire situation when facing the 100,000 men that Mance is still bringing south. It's perfectly fitting, given John's beginnings at Castle Black and what will come to pass in the rest of this book, that Donald Noy is the one guy up at dawn and still keeping to his duties. John is as glad to see this great character as we are, but business comes first, because George really wants us to feel that danger still. Not only are there no defences, not only is there a lack of people, but we learn the remaining garrison has been spread thin by Mance's jabbings at the wall. Faints. Mance wants us to spread ourselves thin, don't you see? And Bowen Marsh had obliged him. It's quite similar to uh, Tywin trying to get past River Run there on the Ford's last book. Anyway, it's a minor point all things considered at the moment, but here we have the beginning of the frosty relationship between John and Bowen Marsh that will come to dominate much of A Dance of Dragons. We get a confirmation of Bowen being as inept as John and Mance Musty would be back at the Fist, and yet we also see something of the man himself. He's got his heart in the right place, he is trying to defend the wall, he just goes the wrong way about it, as he will continue to do. Having said that, there aren't many winning situations for Bowen here. Mance has been very smart in his approach and timing, 
spreading out the defences so Sturr has an easier time of it when he gets there. Bowen hoarding everyone inside Castle Black won't help if all these other bands also try and climb, but it is probably the lesser of two evils. Lost in the urgent news John has to share is the fact that Jarman Buckwell saw and identified John with the Wildlings. In many ways, it's John's worst nightmare. The uh, portrayal, quote-unquote, that, that has troubled him so has been discovered and he's likely been mentally sentenced by many within the watch already. But it speaks to his strength of character and his truly being a watchman that he doesn't worry about all that for now. He focuses on getting the key info out and trying to save lives. Mixed in with all the info John receives before he's taken to Eamon is another confirmation of Bowen Marsh and the wall's ineptitude. He's named Sir Winton Stout as Castellan. Why? Well, because he's a sir. And sirs are supposed to be in charge, aren't they? That's how the world works. That's how it has always worked. And isn't that a nice summarisation of a whole bunch of our themes of the series? A man getting a role he is completely unsuited for because he has the title of knight. Luckily, as John notes, this is all wound up with Donald Noy, the actual best man for the job, getting unofficially left in charge. Something we should all be the happier for. The reunions just keep on coming as we get to say hello to our old pal Eamon, but there's no time for hugs. The maester is all business, even sniffing out John's use of we in regards to the wildlings while inspecting his wound. John must get awfully sick of this. He got it called out for the exact same thing when referring to the Night's Watch whilst he was with the wildlings. But coming with Eamon is the hammer blow of news we've known about for some time, but it hits John square in the face here. John, it grieves me to say, but Lord Commander Mormont was murdered at Craster's Keep by the hands of his sworn brothers. But our own men? Eamon's words hurt a hundred times worse in his fingers. As John mentions, he's been worried about Gior and the others ever since he saw the carnage at the fist, but not once has he ever worried about a mutiny. Hearing that Gior had to go in such a horrible way is bad enough, but it's particularly striking to John. All this time he's worried about his own loyalties and what that says about him as a person and everything else, never knowing that there were real, true turncloaks out there, ones definitely not on a mission from Corrin Halfhand or wondering about their own morality, and they have truly committed an atrocity. We should have seen it coming. The watch is not what it was. Too few honest men to keep the rogues in line. Donald Noy turned the maester's blades in the fire. A dozen true men made it back. Zora said, Giant, your friend the Oryx. We had the tale from them. Eamon and Donald put our thoughts to words. The watch is not what it was, quite. Something we've long discussed back when we arrived at the wall in Game of Thrones, as well as due on Mormont's larger part in that particular problem. Now we are finally seeing the price of these ancient mistakes. The second part of the quote brings more news, both good and bad. Ed made it back. Giant. King Gren, the best of them all. Superb news, but only 12. 12 out of 200. A catastrophic loss in the very best of times, and Castle Black is very, very far away from the best of times. Again, at the opening of Clash of Kings, we spoke about the foolishness of this great ranging and its eventual cost. Now we're here, with just 12 men, 14 if we count John and Sam, an unbelievable amount of loss. Next, George gives us some setup for the second half of John's storyline by introducing the idea of a choosing. John goes through the old brass, confirming the ones he knows are dead, and ironically thinking of a few whose fates he does not yet know, but we do. And then wonders who could possibly replace them. Who indeed, John? We'll be returning to this discussion in later John chapters, of course, but for now, George settles for establishing the relationship between Dennis Manister and Cotterpike and what that will mean later on. Next quote here. The Horn of Winter. That's what he was digging for up along the Milkwater. Mr. Eamon paused, washcloth in hand. The Horn of Winter is an ancient legend. Does the king beyond the wall truly believe that such a thing exists? They all do, said John. Egret said they opened a hundred graves, graves of kings and heroes, all over the valley of the Milkwater. As John's surgery begins, he starts to gabble on about the wildlings to distract himself and get more information to the leadership quickly. But this quote is the most interesting, especially with Mace Eamon pausing at the mention of the Horn of Winter. Perhaps it's nothing, but the tiniest detail like that gets all our minds worrying about what Eamon could know about mystical, magical horns. Because let's face it, 
If anyone is going to know about them, it's Eamon, who also asks whether Mance actually believes in the horn. Is that because he knows what trouble they'll be in if he does? I need answers, Eamon. I need to know what you know. <sighs> Never mind. Incidentally, whenever it's mentioned that Mance went adventuring from grave to grave, from barrow to barrow, in a wild northern land, I can't help but picture Skyrim, which I always enjoy picturing. I spend a lot of my day picturing Skyrim. It's when Donal Noy asks about Egret that John begins slipping over the edge. As pain washes over him, he can no longer keep his internal struggle internal. He revisits the duality of Egret, his love for the woman and his fear of the wilding warrior. He lets slip about his indiscretions and his oath-breaking. And as with all other instances in this chapter, he immediately follows it up with his claim of following Corrin's orders. If we look back, John has done this almost every time. And why? Because it matters what these particular people think of him, more than the simple fact that they are his brothers. Donald and Eamon are father figures too, are mentors, they are friends. It matters to John that they know he only did it because he was true in his soul to the Night's Watch, in all cases aside from Egret. She's the enigma, the one he can't defend as much as he might try. Guilt flows over John just the same as pain, until he finally passes out and has a little bit of rest. So much of this single chapter can be aligned with Game of Thrones, and the next scene is no different. As we mentioned earlier, once upon a time John was in a bad way in the middle of the night, and he needed the presence of his friends to bring him back. I don't think John was on death's door from this particular arrow wound, although he could have been easy enough, but his friends are there to light the way for him regardless. And if it was fun to be back in the presence of Eamon and Donald Noy, what about Westeros's greatest double act, Pip and Gren? We've not seen Pip for nearly two books, and we've enjoyed watching Gren be literally the best guy ever above the wall, but it's been so long since they've been together, and given what re-readers know of John's future decisions as Lord Commander, we had best lap up all we can get. Unfortunately, the jokes have to wait, because we have plenty more suffering for John to get through first, as Pip and Gren tell of one brother who didn't return. We left Sam with the old bear. He wouldn't move, John. You were his brother, he almost said. How could you leave him amongst wildlings and murderers? So there's guilt flying around the room at this point. Yes, Gren leads with the story of Sam slaying another, but John is in no mental state to even comprehend what that means. Instead, he responds to Gren with an accusation he is almost certainly partially directing it himself. It was John who took responsibility for Samwell back at the beginning. He became his friend, he kept him safe, but he left him in the end. Through no choice of his own, it's true, but the guilt will remain for a guy like John. In the same way that John has hurriedly tried to justify his wildling stuff, Gren does the same with his leaving of Sam, because he also feels guilty at leaving a friend behind to die, which we of course know is ridiculous, Gren saved Sam's life and did more for him than any man could during that ranging. That's all without considering the irony of the reader actually knowing Sam has survived and is making for the wall as we speak. Let's also not ignore John thinks of leaving someone with wildlings and murderers, that's exactly what he's just done with Egret, whether he counts as one of those two things or not. But if John thought news of Sam's likely death and the betrayal of Geo and Mormont was hard to handle, the next item, and Winterfell. John be strong. Winterfell is no more. No more? John stared at Eamon's white eyes and wrinkled face. My brothers are at Winterfell, Bran and Rickon. The maester touched his brow. I'm so very sorry, John. Your brothers died at the command of Theon Greyjoy after he took Winterfell in his father's name. I adore the gentle yet direct way that Eamon delivers this news, and we cannot ignore that his experience of receiving similarly devastating news about his family has come to Eamon several times and is obviously being used here. It's so strange for us to see John receive this news for the first time. He didn't even know Balon Greyjoy had crowned himself king. How long ago in the narrative does that seem to us by this point? All of this has happened with John believing in a whole winterfell with Bran and Rickon and Maester Lewin and Old Nan and all the rest of them being safe. To him, this news is as world-breaking as if the wall were to come down behind them. Yet yeah, we have to note that John is still too dazed slash drugged up slash in pain to actually have an emotional reaction here. To him it's merely confusing, it doesn't make any sense. Surely Fionn was never that evil. Surely the great and mighty Winterfell, the cold castle that lives on in his dreams, could never be burnt. 
He mixes that in with his spotting of Bran slash Summer at Queen's Crown, something his Black Brothers likely pass off as fever talk, wondering whether Bran was living on in Summer after death. Well, John, you aren't a million miles away with that guess. Bran was inside Summer on that day. But how interesting it is that John, specifically, should be starting to think about living on in a direwolf. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. First, our chapter of Union ends, a chapter that bridges John's two halves. Yet within his dreams, the mixture continues as he revisits the dream of taking Egret to Winterfell that he had just a few chapters ago. Yet this time, the dream is filled with guilt from his father and the potential death of the woman he loved. This chapter began with John near death, riding as fast as he could for salvation. It ends with his survival, with him being surrounded by friends much missed, and with him being back home. And yet it also ends with world-shattering news that he cannot comprehend, news of a past he wasn't even aware of, and that is little compared to the troubles of a future he must soon face. Okay, that's one chapter down. And what we're actually going to do here is we're going to have our mid-roll section now. And yeah, I know it's not half-time really, we're only one chapter in, but I simply can't bear to interrupt the flow of chapters that we're going to get in a moment. There's just no getting off that death slide once you're on. And I get to hear the funky music a bit earlier, which I always like. So, halfway time today. Three shout-outs to go. First is to our recent guest, Vanessa Cole, specifically for her recent drawing, her recent piece of Daenerys Targaryen. Vanessa promised she would put pencil to paper for Daenerys if the Dragon Queen was to emerge victorious in her latest A Song of Madness matchup, which she did, so we were all the luckier, one because Daenerys is awesome, but two because Vanessa promised and delivered. Now there's no way I can describe this piece, you have to go and have a look, please go to Vanessa's Twitter, that's at VKColeArtist, at the moment it's her pinned tweet, and you'll see a mesmerising portrait of Daenerys with the Targaryen symbol behind her. And honest to God, that's the best I can do to describe it. You need to go and have a look because, like I said on Twitter, Vanessa is a witch. She has unforeseen powers. She can honestly steal people's souls and then transfer it through a magic pencil. Go and look at it. It is amazing. It looks like it looks like you've paused a TV screen and just like removed the colour and stuff. I don't know how she does it. I'm very suspicious of how she's acquired this power, but acquired it she has. So please go and look at that because it is wonderful. And of course, go and look at all of her art as well because there are multiple examples of this kind of talent that she has. So yes, go and share and say well done. Second shower for the day, new podcast alert. I'm sure you're already aware of the blog lordsoficeandfire.wordpress.com is run by the Twitter account at Westross Law or more specifically by the very talented at Clint W or Clint of the Laughing Tree as you may know him. This blog has been around for a while now, putting out incredibly insightful, well-informed, well-written essays about the inner workings of law in the world of Westeros, or the world of the Seven Kingdoms. Like I say, I'm sure most of you know that part already. What we're shouting out today is that there's now a podcast to accompany the blog. It is named Learned Hands, which is a very cool name. And the first episode came out last week. It finishes Clint and at Maester Mary, another very talented writer, especially in the Jon Snow area. And they are tackling a specific question, Well, I'll read you the title here. The Long Night Court. Does the Night's Watch Oath give Lord Commander Jon Snow the authority to lead the wildlings through the wall? So as you can see, just from the title, it's a complex, highbrow question I'm sure you were itching to see debated. It's semi-close to the poll we ran last week of whether Jon would be released for Rob's promise of 100 men, so it seems like a great time to share this episode. And I'm actually on the website here, so I'm going to read you just a very brief description of how this episode is broken down. It says... We tackle this quandary by answering the following questions. How is the Night's Watch Oath like a constitution? What do the applicable legal canons of construction say about how Jon Snow should interpret the oath? What does the oath say about Jon Snow's war powers? So, like I say, highbrow complex. This isn't. This has not been thrown together quickly, I assure you. It's incredibly informative. I really think you guys should go and have a listen and a read of all the former essays as well. I'm sure they'll have similar 
brilliant episodes coming out so do give a follow and we wish our friends over at learned hands all the best of their start like i say go and follow and download and listen and share all those things we're very lucky to have this kind of effort being put forward now finally for mid-roll one more shout out it's for scad and matt of davos fingers for continuing their hard work with a song of madness it's been a couple of weeks since we gave them the shout out and yet the tournament has been going every single day keeping thousands of people entertained even in you know back in normal land do you remember those times it occupied people then but now with us all self-quarantined and at home it's providing even more of a service and it really does provide entertainment provides debate something to think about it's a comfort for many people and the boys do it with aplomb and enthusiasm and they like i say keep so many of us going so we all thank you here from the isle of faces i hope everyone will go and mention them in their tweets go and send them a tweet go and send them a message say thank you because well, without them we wouldn't have it and we'd all be worse off and they do it brilliantly with their tweets with their interactions with fans it's not an easy job and yeah they deserve a salute so from the isle of faces we salute you scatamat abdullah's fingers again alumni very popular alumni from the isle of faces okay i guess i can't really put this off any longer can i Yes, those clouds are not going away over the other faces. We're going to have to deal with them. Okay, fellow green folk, let's begin, shall we, with Catelyn Six. Like I say, it begins here. No, we are not quite at the epicenter just yet, but undeniably we are caught up in the maelstrom as Rob, Catelyn and the many others enter a place they will never leave alive. And all the settings are placed for one of the greatest, most blasphemous events in the history of the Seven Kingdoms. Or a history of literature, whichever way you want to look at. In many ways, this chapter might be even harder for rereaders than Catelyn 7. At least it all ends in Catelyn 7, there is a finish to the pain. A large part of this reread project has been discovering how far back not only George hints about the Red Wedding, but how long the in-world characters have been setting things up for this slaughter and for House Stark to fall. Well, there's not so much need for that today. Today, the signs are blatant, so blatant they are almost offensive to us. Almost as if we want to yell through the page to the phrase and Roose Bolton, how dare they be so blasé and obvious about the whole thing, have some respect. Or perhaps that is our upcoming emotions for Catelyn 7 coming through. Like I say, I might get shouty, I might get teary. I also think this is one of the most difficult chapters of this whole reread in which to put ourselves in a first time of shoes. Because again, the signs are just too clear for us to ignore, we're going to be connecting all the way through. But very clearly, even first timers are meant to feel an enormous sense of foreboding about what's going on here even if they have no idea about how bad it's actually going to be. Maybe you guys should tweet in and message in and tell us how did you first react when you read this chapter. I'll get to my, my reactions later on, but we'd love to know what your specific reactions were. Anyway, here's the first quote of the chapter. The river was a boiling torrent, half again as wide as it had been last year, when Robert divided his army here and vowed to take a freighter bride as the price of his crossing. This opening paragraph wastes no time in setting the mood. Callan outright says she has a heart full of misgivings, but this line stands out to me because no matter how many times I read this book, it'll never stop being weird to me that it was just the year previous that Rob originally crossed at the Twins. It's just mind-boggling to me. I also really like the imagery of a wild, growling river as a connection between Aya and her mother, and a symbol of how close they now are, considering Aya's last chapter. Once Rob and his party make the approach to the Twins, Catelyn wastes no time in advising that they need to go old school here, they need to go basic and make sure all bases are covered with this quote. Once you have eaten of his bread and salt, you have the guest right, and the laws of hospitality protect you beneath his roof. Rob looked more amused than afraid. I have an army to protect me, mother. I don't need to trust in bread and salt. Okay, it sucks. Remember when we said about throwing the book across the room thanks to this chapter? Well, here you go. This is one of them. In all fairness, it'll turn out that bread and salt won't protect Rob either, but this is still one of those blatant face slaps that we spoke of. The fact that Rob is so confident in his army, and 
why wouldn't he be? Unfortunately, Rob has not read Catelyn 7 and isn't cursed with knowledge in the same way we are. The larger point is that Catelyn establishes the importance of Gestrite and her iron-type belief that this will keep them safe because no one in their right mind would break this kind of taboo. And that will be the source of much later discussion when the phrase do a go ahead and do that. So it's important we get the setup here. Especially if readers don't happen to be part of a reread project, they've sniffed out their earlier establishments in this and other books. A large part of this chapter will be meeting numerous phrases, so numerous we'd need a separate episode just to name them all, but a few do pop out as particularly important, especially with the four that ride out to meet Rob. We'll be pointing out their specific roles in the Red Wedding when the time comes, but if you want to take a particular viewpoint, we can almost see some of these as a perfect image of the past and future relationships between House Frey and Houses Stark and Tully. Ryman and Blackwalder Frey fought with Rob in the Riverlands, with Ryman being the one who decided to abandon when news of Rob and Jane broke. Edwin or Edwine, not sure how you pronounce that one, I'm going to say Edwin. Edwin will feature heavily in the future Siege of Riverrun, but more to the point, Peter Frey will become our first window into the changed approach of the Brotherhood Without Banners under Lady Stoneheart's rule. Specifically, the fair trials and deals of honour that we've already seen in Aya's chapters will be replaced by Peter being hanged even while being ransomed, because Lady Stoneheart clearly believes one good turn deserves another. Ryman himself would be captured and hanged by the Brotherhood and Feast, so we've got an awful lot of setup in this meeting alone. Having these four approached specifically is also a really efficient way to show the scheming ambitious side of the phrase mixed with the cruel hardness of others. Ryman, for example, is just stupid and blunt. He just falls into becoming the heir thanks to Sir Severon's death. But Edwin and Blackwalder are both schemers with different techniques, as we'll find in Merritt's prologue and in Feast. And Merritt paints Peter as just a useful piece in the ever-climbing, self-devouring of the phrase that we hope to see more of as we go. But that's for all those who want to guess at the future and ponder the connecting strands of narratives yet to come. Greywind doesn't have time for that. He wants to make his point now. Here's a quote. When the phrase were a half dozen yards away, Catelyn heard him growl, a deep rumble that seemed almost one with the rush of the river. Rob looked startled. Greywind, to me, to me. Instead, the direwolf leapt forward, snarling. At this point of the rereader shouting experience, our yells will be something along the lines of, listen to your direwolf, Rob. And a first-time reader will likely be thinking the same thing, because we've clearly seen evidence of the direwolves being right about this kind of thing. And hey, this is fiction, right? You always listen to the animals. It's basic fantasy, and it comes up barely a page later. There was more trouble at the gatehouse. Greywind bulked in the middle of the drawbridge, shook the rain off, and howled at the portcullis. Rob whistled impatiently. Greywind, what is it? Greywind, with me! But the dialf only bared his teeth. He does not like this place, Catelyn thought. Rob had to squat and speak softly to the wolf before he would consent to pass beneath the portcullis. Like I say, inherently, we as readers know that direwolves are the smart ones, and something bad is obviously about to go down. But we don't have to just look for the symbolic, the more blatant signs are now popping up too. In his haste to apologise for Greywind being a bit rude and unseating Peter Frey when he first kicks off, Rob is now put on the back foot, negotiating-wise, instantly. Therefore, he doesn't have the presence of mind to think twice about the fact his army is being moved to the other side of the river, where he can't reach them, or, more specifically, where they can't reach him and his direwolf is being kept outside in a way, despite him being Rob's best protector. Rob might not have time to see what those clues mean, but we certainly do. And I suppose it simply wouldn't enter Catelyn or Rob's minds that things would possibly go as bad as they do, because literally no one else would try such a thing, ever, like we said a minute ago. On top of that, their options are limited, and Rob likely believes, even if he were to heed Greywind, he can't turn back now. That's certainly true. If he turns around, he loses all credibility in the north, and morale goes tumbling down. But I do wonder what would have happened if Robert listened to his direwolf, decided staying would be a bad idea, and instead announced he was going to cross and then just keep marching on the other side. He is still king, can still legitimately make that order, especially if he says it is a matter of winning the war. Obviously, he could wave goodbye to the phrase helping out by doing that, 
But what of the Boltons? Do the Freys have the stones to try something without Rob's army being dismounted and drunk? I say no, they cut their losses. Roos clearly can't just disobey a direct order, although he could have abandoned if he were kept as the rearguard, as Rob mentions later on. I think the biggest problem is that Rob's army's morale and physical condition would be in serious question for the Battle of Moat Caelan. They've already been marching for weeks in the solid rain, now you are saying they can't rest and eat for a single night because your pet wolf is growling. Unfortunately, it wouldn't go down well, but it would have been interesting to see Rob stamp his authority down as king. Major alas alarms here. Major, major. So, with two of his greatest allies, greatest assets now removed, Rob and his family reunite with a tiny, little man we haven't seen since the Game of Thrones, and won't see much more of in the future. Yet for all that, his presence is felt throughout the series. My fellow green folk, let me reintroduce you to Walder Frey. There was something of the vulture about Lord Walder, and rather more of the weasel. Huh, it's a good job neither of those animals are connected with death or being untrustworthy, eh Rob? Unfortunately, Walder hasn't learned any, any late life manners in the year or so since we last saw him, and we can see by the way he laces his speech with rebukes and jabs and insults, too many to list here, although telling Edmure he had already outlived four Lord Tullys really seems to be towing the line to me. Rather than focus on Walder's horribleness or these constant jabs, let's celebrate Rob's ability to not only deflect all of Walder's needles, but get through what is a very difficult and uncomfortable situation when, when apologising to all the female phrase with a little dignity. Truly, Rob is the king of kings, even if Catelyn does detect a bit of Ned's voice in him at this moment, which I love personally. And let's also not skip past the latest example of establishment when we meet Aegon Jinglebell Frey. Like we said earlier on, this chapter really is just George setting up all the pieces of his mousetrap board before he flicks the ball into motion. But of course, as nobly and honourably as young Rob acts here, it falls short still when Walder slips this in. Good, the Lord of the Crossing said. That was very good, your grace. No words can set it right. I think it's clear what Walder is emphasising here. It doesn't matter what Rob says or how he acts, good or bad, Walder already knows Rob's fate is sealed and he's going to continue hanging on to this idea of being slighted beyond words of reconciliation for justification of his upcoming atrocity. But if anything, him slipping this one in is proof for me, personally, that he's not interested in the slight at all. He always wanted to get this one over on the Starks and Tullys, regardless. He's lived beneath four of them, don't you know? Next quote. My lady is beautiful. Edmure took her hand and drew her to her feet. But why are you crying? For joy, Roslyn said. I weep for joy, my lord. Enough, Lord Boulder broke in. Sound those alarm bells. Firstly, something seems to have actually gone right, which is downright disconcerting at this point. But then there is the case of Rosalind crying. For first-time readers, Rosalind citing joy as the reason doesn't seem simple enough. Perhaps they guessed that maybe Rosalind just didn't want to marry an older man who she's never met, or that tears are natural for a bride, as Catelyn theorises in a few pages. Us suspicious rereaders can now wonder if it's because she knows what's going to happen to these poor people before long. Walder Freight does break in and stop her rather quickly after all, doesn't he? Perhaps because he doesn't want the surprise to be spoiled, because he orders her whisked away and then indulges in some more subtle slash unsubtle hints about what will happen next. Here's a few examples. The bedding is the sweetest part. Okay, that's when the attack will actually happen. The red will run. I think we can see what he means by that. And put some wrongs aright. Again, pretty clear now we're looking back at it. Walder Frey knows his way around a conversation, but he is 90-odd. Do you think his sons listen to this stuff and worry he's going to slip up and give the game away too quick? He also slips his mayhaps in there, and I'd say he says it once for Catelyn and once for Rob, but we find out later that Catelyn was supposed to become a hostage rather than be murdered. Either way, it's all a huge callback to Bran's experience with the younger Walders back in Clash of Kings. And before the audience of the old man finally ends, Catelyn remembers the importance of bread and salt for guest right. Walder Frey doesn't offer any protest, but if I remember correctly, it's kind of a red flag that he doesn't offer and the Starks have to actually ask. As we find out, He's perfectly willing to do the deed even with a supposed curse, 
but he'd likely prefer if he could get away with not involving guest right. But as we say, he doesn't protest. Though we are going to have to return to the fact that the phrase did break this taboo and the resulting consequences much later on. The deed is done, and the breaking of a great taboo set, one that may well echo through the supernatural vibes of Westeros, or one that already has if we want to remember Danny's visit to the House of the Undying. After finding out that everyone has actually quite nice rooms, keep them sweet, eh, you older? Catelyn probably should have focused a bit more on the whole if it's too good to be true angle. Catelyn meets yet more Freys, who will eventually come to mean doom, most notably Hostine, who will have a large role in the North during Dance, but more importantly, has been at Harrenhal with Roos, as we know, so we can begin to see how the Bolton influence is spreading throughout the family. Mostly, the point is to create the atmosphere of Catelyn and the others being outnumbered, especially when she finds out that one of the few friendly, trustworthy Freys in Sir Perwin will not be attending. Again, the first-time reader doesn't really think anything of this news, and neither does Catelyn, but it will all be fodder for a too-late realisation for both Catelyn and the reader later on. And just as we mentioned Harrenhal, Roose Bolton also returns, doing his best acting job and getting the focus off himself by bringing news of Willis Mandley and the deaths at the Battle of Winterfell. And of course, he tells not of his part in getting Willis Mandley captured, and thereby thinning Rob's forces while keeping his own. In a moment, he'll give a more complete rundown of the losses, and rereaders will note it just so happens to be all those of the strongest ties to Rob, or the least reason to like the Boltons that got in harm's way. It's a quote. Two thirds of my strength was on the north side when the Lannisters attacked those still waiting to cross. Norrie, Locke, and Burley men chiefly, with Sir Willis Mandley and his White Harbour Knights as rearguard. So, we've got the ever-loyal mountain clans being thinned out, because it would be very hard to get them on side after the Great Betrayal, as well as the Mandleys, who are not only loyal to Rob, but the most likely combatant for the Hornwood lands, so we can't accuse Roos of not considering all angles. But not content with casualties, Roos sees an opportunity in who he leaves behind to guard the ford. I left 600 men at the ford, spearmen from the rills, the mountains, and the white knife, a hundred Hornwood longbows, some free riders and hedge knights, and a strong force of stout and Serwin men to stiffen them. So again, we get rid of more Manderley men, we fed out the Hornwoods for the same purpose, more mountain men, and the Serwins, also of extreme loyalty to the Starks. In fairness, the Stouts and Ricewells are included, or at least some of them are, but while we know these two to be pro-Bolton, supposedly, in Dance, that may well be because of Roos's machinations here, where he damages them to the point they have no choice but to join with him, so it's all set up for him. Yet Catelyn sifts through the news to put Roos on the back heel again when she asks about Ramsay, giving us a very interesting response from Roos. Here's the highlights. His blood is tainted, that cannot be denied. Perhaps such service might atone in some small measure for whatever crimes his bastard blood has led him to commit. He shrugged. Or not. When the war is done, his grace must weigh and judge. By then I hope to have a true-born son by Lady Walder. This is a cold man, Catelyn realised, not for the first time. Roos probably starts off pretty genuine. We know from Arya's Harrenhal chapters that he really is into the idea of blood needing to be pure or thinned and that such can turn a person bad, so he probably believes this is the actual reason for Ramsay's irregularities, if you want to call them that. From that we could guess that Ramsay is merely a sword for Roos to wield from down south, someone to do his dirty work while providing deniability because he has this taint, I can't control him, etc. Or, of course, when he supposedly does good things, Roos could take the credit. But the ending of this paragraph is what's interesting, because we still can't really say for sure whether he means it or not. Is Ramsay expendable to him? The quick response would be that he legitimises Ramsay later, and why would he do that if he doesn't care? But that can easily be explained away by the need to marry Ramsay to Jane Poole slash fake Ire, as well as it being a handy way to throw Ramsay a bone and keep him in line for a little while longer. We're really skipping ahead to dance here, but we know from those Fionn chapters that Roos doesn't approve of Ramsay's leadership style or Harry rules, and that Lady Walder is indeed pregnant. Would it be a surprise to anyone if Roos ends up wanting rid of Ramsay if he doesn't already? 
The situation as we left it, narratively, at Winterfell, doesn't really allow Roos the freedom to pick and choose, though he has just sent Ramsay out into the snow to find Stannis. But like I say, we're skipping ahead. To be sure, we will revisit this paragraph from Roos in the future. Besides, the larger point, as Catelyn realises, is that if this is a man cold enough to be fine with the death of his own son, what would he be willing to do to others? There's some brief word on Theon, with Roos's calculating again proving to be above emotions when he argues for demanding concessions from the Ironborn in return for Theon's execution. Cold and politically astute, I'm sure that won't come up again. As for Theon, this is the largest confirmation we've ever got that he is truly alive at the Dreadfort still, and it's very difficult to put ourselves in the first time reader's shoes in regards to not knowing if we'll ever see Theon again. At this point, we don't have any other Ironborn POVs, could easily be forgiven for thinking that the Ironborn side of the story was kind of donezo. There's also a little bit of irony in that Catelyn refuses the idea of seeing Gain in freeing Fionn specifically because he murdered her sons. Isn't that exactly what Rickard Carstark lost his head for thinking? Clearly different circumstances between young boys and adults being slain in battle, but it's the same emotional core. After some more blatant lies about Duskendale and the Glovers, we finally come to the end of this brutal setup chapter with Catelyn asking Roost how many men he has with him. 500 horse and 3,000 foot is his reply. Oddly, the same number Rob has just marched from Riverrun to the Twins. But what is key is what these men are made up of. Boltons and Karstarks, the two houses who hate Rob the most. Unfortunately, we know what that means. There's an irony that if this had been Rob versus Roost straight up, then the numbers would have been equal, but that's without adding the phrase, the booze, or the element of surprise that is still to come. Roost even regrets he does not have more. I bet he does. We close with this from Rob. You will have command of my rearguard, Lord Bolton. I mean to start for the neck as soon as my uncle has been wedded and bedded. We're going home. A dagger. A dagger through my heart. How painful this is as a parting sentence. Firstly, we get teased about Rob's amazing battle plan that we spoke about last week, but then there's just the outright confidence that Rob's dreams are about to be realised when we know the opposite is true. Worse, for re-readers, we know we aren't about to head to King's Landing or the North to give us a breather, no, we know our death slide is spinning down faster, faster, and there's no escape at all. The bottom is coming. George isn't really going to release us from this point out, as he makes the decision he's only done a couple of times before, with the fall of Eddard Stark, or the Battle of the Blackwater, as he keeps the next few chapters coming. Personally, I encourage you all to stop listening, stop reading, and pretend that this is just where Song of Ice and Fire ends. This is the end of the story. No more talking. Okay, fine, we'll keep going. Let's move on to our next... Terrible chapter, terrible George, you should not, you should have cut this out entirely. No, I joke. Our next chapter, Aya 10. Perhaps seeing the name Aya on the page would have given us some relief. Perhaps we might have expected another travel chapter of her and Sandor to keep the pain away. But no, George has gone full bottle episode. The thing about today's Aya chapters is that while they are both critical, they are also both incredibly short. Something else George is experimenting with here. By my memory, they were the two shortest chapters in all of Song of Ice and Fire. But it seems I forgot about Brad Free from A Game of Thrones, which is approximately 1600 words. Ayer 11, the next Ayer chapter, is around 1700 for comparison, so we're getting pretty close. Google makes several other suggestions for shortest chapter, but they are mostly based on differing page lengths, so it's a bit difficult to see there. Regardless, clearly we've never had two chapters so short, so near to each other, and even Catelyn 7 is shorter than you might remember. George wants these punches to land quickly, because he already knows they're going to land hard. Anyway, all of that means we're really going to be spending just a couple of minutes on this chapter because clearly the slide is fastest at the bottom before we finally reach that total end. Difficult as it is to forget the events of the chapter coming up after this, we can see that George was initially trying to build up a huge amount of excitement before bringing everything crashing down. Finally, after all of her hardship and suffering, Aya is getting closer to her family with every step. 
We've just seen Catelyn and Rob arrive at the twins. We know they are there. We know that Arya is close now. And every first-time reader was probably giddy at what would have been, if it was pulled off, easily the most important reunion in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. So far, at least. To get us in the mood for surely coming happy times, George even dresses the beginning of this chapter in a situation that wouldn't be out of place in a Disney film. A grumpy protector forced to play dress-up instead of rely on his sword. A hidden princess coming out of peasantry to be reunited with her family. There's even a sassy horse that's prepared to bite people. I'm thinking Mulan myself. Yet even in Sandor's explanation for the get-up and for how they get past Sir Donald High with ease, he shows himself off as an intelligent man who has accurately observed the interactions of the higher class, or knights at least, with small folk, and has worked out how he can exploit that. As we've said a thousand times before, it ties into his hatred of knights and the belief that they are all idiots, or monsters, or both, but he is right on the money in this occasion. And it's a contrast to Sandor's normal tactic of just barging through with the sword. He's actually trying out different moves here. But as Aya points out, said exploitation and tricks will only get you so far with a face like Sandor Kagan's. So we're again given a bit of false expectations in that Sandor might be eventually recognised and challenged and that this will be the point of the chapter, whether it comes before Aya gets to her family or after. First quote of this chapter. Last night she'd had a bad dream, a terrible dream. She couldn't remember what she'd dreamed of now, but the feeling had lingered all day. If anything, it had only gotten stronger and what I wouldn't give to know the contents of this dream. My headcanon is that Greywind is at the twins. He can sense the bad mojo about the place, and knows something unnatural is about to go down. Nymeria can pick that up through their sibling connection, and Aya is therefore tapping into it with her dream connection to Nymeria. I'm not sure if there are any mentions later on, but I'd love to know if Bran has a particularly bad dream around this time too. Clearly, something is bothering the souls of the Starks and their direwolves, because as we mentioned in the last chapter, everything has been perfectly set up, and there's no going back now. They heard the music before they saw the castle, the distant rattle of drums, the brazen blare of horns, and the thin skirling of pipes faint beneath the growl of the river and the sound of the rain beating on their heads. Ira and the Hound arrive outside the twins, and while the mention of drums is enough to send us spiralling into Catelyn's upcoming POV, the eagle-eyed will recall this as a confirmation of what the Ghost of High Heart said last week. Drums and horns and pipes and screams is specifically what she said, and George even puts the instruments in the same order in what is a superb piece of writing. Looking back now, we can see that screams will be the next to come, and that the wolf will be howling in grief. Just superb from George, a great callback. Sandor even guesses that the wedding itself is already done, and they've moved on to celebrating, which again is meant to throw us off course, because if anything was to go wrong, it would surely happen during the ceremony, right? Anyone who's ever seen a film or TV show can tell you that, so maybe we're in the clear. The musicians in the nearer castle were playing a different song than the ones in the castle on the, on the far bank, though, so it sounded more like a battle than a song. They're not very good, I observed. Again, we get a connection with the Ghost of High Heart. We said last week that her prediction sounded more like something from a battle, and now Aya is thinking the same. It also makes the rereader question at precisely what time Aya and the Hound are riding in here. Has the slaughter already begun inside? The Bolton Man does say the feast is half over. Either way, Aya makes another clear connection here when she notices the world's banners have lost their colour in the rain, very, very similar to what Catelyn fought in her previous chapter. But clearly, aside from moving Aya tragically close to reuniting with her family, the purpose of this chapter is to show the status of the camps and how it has been set up for the slaughter to be incredibly effective, as well as drop numerous clues for rereaders to go back, find, and throw their book away over all over again. What stands out most to me is the establishment of barriers, and I did tweet about this earlier because I was just amazed at the details that we found rereading this. Aya notes that the green fork is huge and overflowing, comparing it to a lion in its den. Again, similar to Catelyn's thoughts, and fitting that we should think of a lion at the culmination of Tywin's evil plan. Clearly, when everything kicks off, there will be no escape that way, though we'll find out later plenty tried and died for it. 
Then there's the wagon wall that I and Sandor pass through to keep everyone penned in. Clearly, they do not want to be chasing Rob's men across the country for the next few weeks. And then there's the castle itself, which the phrase will pour from. Of course, that is an obvious barrier. And if command of the wagon perimeter is consistent all the way around and manned by Bolton men, then I think you see my point. Rob's men will be caught between opposing forces with no idea that they are even opposing forces and will have essentially no chance. It is literally like caging an animal. Then there are the tents themselves, and what stuck out to me most was that I notes they are open towards the castle gates. They are facing, the, the front door is facing the castle gates. So when the phrase do come pouring out in Naya's next chapter, the only way to exit the tents would be to run right into them. On top of that, she notes how drunk everybody is and how tightly packed they are within all the tents. All wedged in, all drunk, all merry. In other words, in absolutely no shape to fight whatsoever. And as if that wasn't enough, we get this. Beneath a tree, four archers were slipping wax strings over the notches of their longbows, but they were not her father's archers. Come on, George, you don't have to be you don't have to be that blatant about it. We get the point, you don't have to slap us around here. All of this makes you realise just how bad this slaughter is going to be, and how Rob's men had absolutely zero chance. They are drunk, they are penned into tents that will be brought down on them and then set on fire. They will run into the enemy as they try to escape. They will go and drown in the river as they try to escape. The enemy is already armed. They will be caught between two aggressors. And again, there's just no escape. There's death at every angle here. Brutal isn't the word. The phrase, if we really want to admire their planning skills, have outdone themselves. This is an incredibly intricate plan that they've really thought of all angles, all possibilities. Of course, you have to ignore the evil of slaughtering drunk, unarmed men you call friends, but it is superior planning nonetheless. And it's actually only just clicked to me that we've already seen an army plied of alcohol and then defeated or ignored with Daenerys and the Second Sons in her Yunkai chapter. But as this chapter closes, it's not the details and logistics of slaughter that stick with you, especially as first-time readers might not see those things necessarily. It's the thematic confusion and sense of loss that Aya feels. Here's a few quotes from her. Aya twisted and turned, trying to look everywhere at once, hoping for a glimpse of a direwolf badge. All she saw were strangers. She stared at a man relieving himself in the reeds. But he wasn't Alebelly, and maced across their path. But he was too young and thin to be Maester Lewin. Aya gazed up at the twins, their high tower windows glowing softly wherever a light was burning. Through the haze of rain, the castles looked spooky and mysterious, like something from one of Old Nan's tales. But they weren't Winterfell. Something feels wrong. It's all out of whack. For Aya, this is supposed to be her coming home parade. Her reunion with a family she didn't even get to say goodbye to. She's had essentially zero contact with anything connected to home, and now she's oh so close. But it isn't there. This isn't home. Earlier in the chapter, Aya worries yet again that Rob and Catelyn won't recognise her, or worse, won't accept her because of her crimes, quote-unquote. So is this just a projection of those concerns, the idea that she no longer fits in anywhere? Or is this a remnant from this unknown dream of doom that she had? Is it her subconscious telling her that it doesn't feel like coming home? Because it isn't. In more ways than one, Winterfell and the twins serve as thematic opposites on several levels, the grabbing ambition and politics of the phrase is the complete other end of the spectrum to the genuine love of the Stark families, and the phrase made their fortune by charging money for their command over a natural resource, whereas Winterfell used theirs as a way to keep people safe and fulfil the social contract over thousands of years. But anyway, does it not feel like a reunion because Iron knows she is not going to be reunited, but instead fall woefully short? Either way, the tone is set and the chapter ends. Hold those hands again, everybody. Here we come to Catelyn 7. I think Aziz got to this note already, but I'm going to repeat it anyway. The drums were pounding, 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 and her head with them. Is this the most recognisable opening sentence for any chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire? Relevant given our Sporkle Spectacular episodes. 
It has to be up there, I would think. You are a better person than I if you can read or hear this and not be filled with instant dread. It is a literal switch. Hear it, read it, our mindset changes, our heart grows heavy. Regardless, the next two sentences are about the pipes first and then the horns. So although George has switched around the order, we still have these three reminders again of the dream of the ghost of High Heart and yet more dread seeping in. There's going to be a lot of that. Words like dread. <laughs> I'd get used to those if I were you. But George also sets the atmosphere for the entire chapter here. A cacophonous din is booming in the room and inside Catelyn's head. And for anyone who has ever experienced a migraine, this really leaps off the page as just a horrible, stressful, encompassing atmosphere that anyone would want to get out of as soon as possible. It's hot in there, she can smell everyone, the music is terrible. She later talks about the smoke making her feel sick and her head is thudding. We've all been there. Catelyn is here to play her role and then get out and go to bed. And there's something very Catelyn about that, especially in There Is Her Final Act. She stays because that's her duty as a Tully, as a mother and as a sister as well. It's what's expected of her. Even now, at the unknown end, she keeps a theme going that we have seen so much of, her life as a figure for others to look to, and how often that takes precedence over her as a woman and a person. And of course, the awful music is one of Rereader's favourite clues to look back and find after the fact. There is also yet another connection between mother and daughter, as Aya noted the same thing just a moment ago. Yet most of the heat came off the bodies of the wedding guests, jammed in so thick along the benches that every man who tried to lift his cup poked his neighbour in the ribs. Even on the dais, they were closer than Catelyn would have liked. She had been placed between Sir Ryman Frey and Roose Bolton, and had gotten a good nose full of both. So we first get a similarity to the feast tents outside and the number of people packed in, which is good for no one in a fight, but is at least better for the guys with better numbers, which the Freys certainly possess here. But worse for the moment is the other relatable part of this that we've all shared, being at some social event and winding up sat with people you've got no interest in talking to, and really what a pair to be sat with. On one side you've got sweaty, fat, dull-witted Ryman Frey as your choice of conversation, or on the other side as a man you probably can't even hear above the music, and if you can, sounds creepy as hell. Ryman's constant drinking is interesting to look back on. We know from the epilogue that some people had the specific role to drink in order to encourage the Stark men to also drink as we learn about Merritt and the Great John. Ryman seems to have no such mission as just drinking of his own volition. Is this because some men drink to raise their blood for a fight? Because some men would rather face potential death drunk than sober? Or just because he likes to drink? Who knows, but it is an odd choice given the role he has coming up in a moment. Maybe he just wanted the excuse of popping off to the toilet. On the flip side, Roos is being conservative with both wine and food, but that just seems like normal Roos. Let's note that Catelyn states she has been placed between these two, and you'd have to think this is part of the plan because just about everything seems to be part of the plan. Though I can't see specifically why, seeing as Ryman and Roos both head off to do their own thing before the fighting starts in going and getting their men. But it's more likely a divide and conquer strategy to keep all the loyalists apart as long as possible. Walder and co also seem to have changed course on the too-good-to-be-true vibe they were passing out earlier, as Catelyn describes the frankly disgusting-sounding food. I guess that makes sense. Why waste the good stuff when it's going to be all over the floor in a few minutes' time, whether via flipped tables or opened innards? I bet they are holding back a real good feast to celebrate when this is all over, and we do see some of the better food come out you know, just at the wrong time. And besides, why allow your enemies a nice last meal when you could offer them calves' brains instead? Too Good To Be True does make its return when Catelyn looks to a giddy Edmure enjoying his time with his new bride. And this is a bit of a side note and something we'll come back to in Feast, but I'd really love to know Edmure's memories of all this, and if he now feels guilty about the great time he was having just before his family was slaughtered. It would certainly be kind of fitting for his character arc, a guy for whom things go wrong despite him never really doing anything to earn such. He's acting like any normal person would at a wedding here, yet you have to think he experiences copious amounts of survivor's guilt later. Besides, Catelyn finds this more hint. Poor Rosalind's smile had a fixed quality to it, as if someone had sewn it onto her face. 
Bad enough that we're already getting hints of sewing going on near people's heads. We don't like that. But another clear clue for us to look back on and see staring at us after the fact. We never get the chance to really know Roslyn, but you have to feel for her here. She's obviously terrified and ashamed of what's about to happen, but has been forced into it by her family. It's almost a corrupted version of the life that Catelyn herself has experienced. Family, family, duty, honour. No doubt, Roslyn has been plied with persuasions of this being the best thing for her family, of her having a duty or role to play as a fray, and of the lost honour that she can help recover in terms to Rob breaking his pact. Also, imagine her as a young woman being told by her father or uncles or brothers that her role to play is to sleep with someone, as well as being uber creepy, it's a continuation of the militarization of a weaponizing of women's bodies that we've seen time and time again, whether it be with Cersei, with Marjorie, or indeed with Catelyn and Lysa Tully during Robert's Rebellion. We shouldn't exclude Rosalind from our deepest sympathies for having to put up with such just because of her surname. And of course, it's only natural for Catelyn to see her younger self in the not-quite-blushing bride, because but the next few lines are a tough read. Your sisters dance very well, she said to Sir Ryman Frey, trying to be pleasant. There aren't some cousins. Sir Ryman drank a swallow of wine, the sweat trickling down his cheek into his beard. Oh, this really does make my heart ache. Part of Catelyn's whole theme through this book, or all the books really, is her loneliness, and it really gets to me that she's here alone at what should be a happy ceremony. She's making an effort to be nice to someone and gets nothing back. And it must be also horribly hard for someone who lost their husband a year ago to be at a wedding and be left alone to remember what she's lost not to mention the spiral it will send her down in regards to Sansa's own force wedding in a few paragraphs' time. Staying with the heart-hurt category for Catelyn is when she convinces herself everything is probably fine in regards to Rob. His guards are around him, they are sober at least, sword belts are up on the wall, everyone's safe. Like we said in our early chapters, this is a perfectly natural opinion to take. Of course she doesn't foresee crossbowmen appearing in the gallery, or the entire room suddenly trying to kill her son instead of just one drunk guy, because who in their right mind would be able to think up something like that? Here's another quote. Bolton had made a toast to Lord Walder's grandsons when the wedding feast began, pointedly mentioning that Walder and Walder were in the care of his bastard son. From the way the old man had squinted at him, his mouth sucking at the air, Catelyn knew he had heard the unspoken threat. This is another reread of favourite to look back on and see in a different light. It is so excruciating how Catelyn is actually dead on the money, her political and observational skills have gone nowhere, she's completely right about there being an unspoken threat, but she lacks the context to see the whole picture. With hindsight, we can see this is effectively the last resistance of the Red Wedding not going ahead, giving up the ghost. This is the final barrier. It is happening now. No getting off the death slide. It also brings up some interesting conversations on whether Roos or Walder was the driving force behind this whole thing. Roos is in the more precarious situation in terms of numbers and being far from home, but this paints it as Walder being the more likely to back out. Interesting, but let us keep our focus on our dear Catelyn while we still can. Another quote. By this hour tomorrow, Rob would be off to another battle, this time with the Iron Men at Moat Caelan. Strange how that prospect seemed almost a relief. He will win his battle, he wins all his battles, and the Ironborn are without a king. Besides, Ned taught him well. The drums were pounding. Jingle Bell hopped past her once again, but the music was so loud she could scarcely hear his bells. Alas alarms, alas alarms to the nth degree everybody. George really twists the knife here with the future that will never be, the one we are hoping for and that has been built up over the past few chapters. Again, Catelyn is right. Rob does win all his battles. We've seen him do it. Surely we'll see him do it again, because who could imagine a book where he wouldn't? Those who have read Game of Thrones, you might say, but George is a master of trickery. And again, we not only get the ominous drums, but the slightest of reminders about the ghost of High Heart when Catelyn hears the little bells. As we continue getting more slight hints, the great John being persuaded to drink, Roose heading off to the privy to arm and armour himself, we assume, and servants coming and going, 
We also get Rob coming to his mother and providing more questionable material when Ryman tells him his former squire Oliver is not at the castle. So the friendly phrases are missing are starting to pile up and even a first time reader might start to wonder why some specifics aren't there. And we can also see Ryman Frey is certainly no lame lifer when it comes to quick wits or keeping a ruse going. He really just can't talk to anyone. The more heartbreaking aspect of this is Catelyn choosing not to dance with her son. We can forgive her, she was not to know. And clearly both of them just want to get out of there. It's actually heartwarming how similar we see them be in this chapter. But I would pay a lot of dragons for a world where Catelyn and Rob could share that final dance before they leave the world together. After all, she didn't get to attend his wedding. She's owed. Ryman staggers off, same as Roos did, and then we get two more paragraphs of Catelyn's innocence before the big game kicks off. And I'm being genuine, but even realising that halfway down the pages when things change, I get the goose pimples on my arms. My heart starts beating faster. Such is the power of this chapter. But before we reach the end of this slide, let's look at those last two paragraphs, where Catelyn does a mini roundup of everyone being happy and alive before the world goes mad. Here's a quote, a longer one for you. When she wore a dress in place of a halberd, Lady Major's eldest daughter was quite pretty, tall and willowy, with a shy smile that made her long face light up. It was pleasant to see that she could be as graceful on the dance floor as in the training yard. Catelyn wondered if Lady Major had reached the neck yet. She had taken her other daughters with her, but as one of Rob's battle companions, Dacey had chosen to remain by his side. He has Ned's gift for inspiring loyalty. Olivar Frey had been devoted to her son as well. Hadn't Rob said that Olivar wanted to remain with him even after he'd married Jane? Catelyn sees her brother happy with his bride, she sees jokes being shared, children being entertained, and she sees Rob and Daisy dancing together in our final feel-good moment of the chapter, or maybe ever. There are rather obvious connections to be drawn between Daisy and Brienne in terms of their devotion to their king, and whether Daisy's feelings include the romantic is rather beside the point. The point is George is cruelly highlighting who Daisy is as a person at one of her happiest moments before she loses her life without even being afforded the chance to defend or avenge her king. But more than that is Catelyn, here in the final minutes, comparing Rob to Ned. What could be more fitting, especially given the future storylines of the North, than focusing on his ability to inspire loyalty moments before he is to be betrayed? It's fascinating to look at because yes, Rob will lose all for lack of loyalty, yet his further cause will live on in the North, as does the memory of his father. Their shared goodness and honour will have people still fighting in the name of Stark, even when the Starks are apparently gone. Whereas the betrayers, well, we already know what Tywin's legacy looked like after his death, and we can put hard money on seeing similar comeuppance for the ends of Walder Frey and Rhys Bolton. Either way, it's just kind of George to give us the final connection between father and son, with a loving mother and wife looking on. And of course, at the very end, Catelyn's perceptive mind is still working. She's just about to suss how strange it is that someone so loyal to Robin Oliver would not come to the wedding when she is interrupted by Walder Frey, and our collective hearts as a fandom stop beating. The bedding ceremony is clearly the height of a wedding feast such as this, and it serves the phrase purposes on multiple fronts. Firstly, the giddiness of song and drink and jokes, not forgetting the prospect of seeing a naked woman, is going to drive all thoughts of personal safety or possible danger from the minds of most men present. Not only that, but it physically removes a good deal of Rob's loyal men. The Great John is the most prominent example, but many more go off with Edmure, who can now be safely used as a prisoner against the Blackfish when they try and take Riverrun, leaving Rob as the primary target definitely outnumbered with just a few guards left around him, and none of them in much of a guarding mood. Here's a quick quote. Rosalind was stiff with terror, clutching the great John as if she feared he might drop her. She's crying too, Catelyn realised as she watched Sir Mark Piper pull off one of the bride's shoes. This is going to have a major payoff in a few seconds, but here we clearly see that Rosalind absolutely knows what is about to happen to Edmure's family, and is absolutely terrified of it. Again, as she did earlier, Catelyn can only connect back to her feelings and memories of her own bedding ceremony, and in fairness, she's likely still right, 
I think a percentage of Rosalind's terror is still dedicated about what's to come up in the chambers. Interestingly, Catelyn notes that she herself would have been expected to go along with Edmure's group, and you've got to think that probably this is part of the plan. Assumedly, a good number of the loyalists who are carrying Rosalind and Edmure off to bed will be killed in a second, and we know some will be captured as well. But it is much easier just to grab Catelyn along the corridor and lock her in a room quickly, while Rob and others are dealt with in the hall. Now you have two Tully hostages to present to the Blackfish, or even try and use against the North and or Lysa, which is obviously better than one, especially given that there's 0% chance Brynden Tully tells anyone to hang Catelyn as he does with Edmure in Feast. At least if that had gone down, Catelyn would have been spared the actual sight of Rob's death, and it would have been a major mirroring to Sansa being locked up in the tower as Ned fell in King's Landing. On the flip side, Catelyn also thinks that Rob was supposed to go too, and that Walder will be annoyed if he didn't. That doesn't make as much sense. Yes, Rob could easily be killed on the way up to the bedrooms, or maybe on his return, but it seems like everything falls perfectly into place for Walder's plan as is. Irregardless, the pure emotions of reading this passage outweigh any chance of really dissecting it, because, fellow green folk, we've reached the bottom of our death slide, and as Catelyn tells us, we are welcomed by drums that are pounding again, pounding, pounding, pounding. And here we go. Daisy Mormont, who seemed to be the only woman left in the hall besides Catelyn, stepped up behind Edwin Frey and touched him lightly on the arm as she said something in his ear. Edwin wrenched himself away from her with unseemly violence. No, he said too loudly, I'm done with dancing for the nonce. Daisy paled and turned away. Catelyn got slowly to her feet. What just happened there? Doubt gripped her heart, where an instant before had been only weariness. It is nothing, she tried to tell herself. You are seeing grumpkins in the woodpile. You are becoming an old silly woman, sick with grief and fear. In the end, the signal of the end of House Stark is something as simple as a girl being turned down for a dance. Catelyn's emotional intelligence is on point. She immediately knows something is wrong and instinctively heads after Edwin Frey, and suddenly the whole pace changes. We go from relaxed, post-party atmosphere of everyone leaving the hall to everything being fast and hurried as a slow tune starts to play. With scarcely a moment's respite, they began to play a very different sort of song. No one sang the words, but Catelyn knew the reins of Castamere when she heard it. Edwin was hurrying towards the door. She hurried faster, driven by the music. Six quick strides and she caught him. And who are you? The proud lord said, that I must bow so low. She grabbed Edwin by the arm to turn him and went cold all over when she felt the iron rings beneath his silken sleeve. Oh, it's a real punch in the heart. That moment of realisation, the sudden connecting of dots about Oliver and Perwin, and the precise reason for Rosalind crying. As she and her children have shown throughout the series, Catelyn's political mind is quick and sharp, but this time it delivers only horror as everything happens at once. At this point, you are far stronger than me if you can resist reading to the end and stopping to take notes. Definitely, there's no stopping for me. I had to read from here until the end of the chapter twice before I wrote anything down, because despite how many times I read this chapter... It never ever fails to deliver a huge emotional blow and to get me crying. I'm really not good enough of words to describe the feeling to you, but I'm going to bet a good number of you feel the same regardless. So again, let me say, let's hold hands and try and get through this together. Let's leave Catelyn aside for a moment and return to her in a second. The first thing that happens is Rob being taken down by three crossbow bolts. Here's a quote. Rob gave Edwin an angry look and moved to block his way and staggered suddenly as a quarrel sprouted from his side, just beneath the shoulder. There's a few connections to be had here. First is that John has just suffered an arrow wound to the leg as well, but that seems pretty small in comparison to the idea that both Rob and Tywin, the two major combatants in the War of the Five Kings, especially in terms of the Riverlands, both eventually fall by betrayal-based crossbow bolts. And of course, there's the cruel fact that Rob never even gets a chance to defend himself to draw a sword to win a battle as he has so many times before. He's taken out in a cowardly, dishonourable fashion. But those around him act in a complete opposite of cowardly or dishonourable. Chief among them is the small John, who somehow has the presence of mind to protect his king above all else by throwing a table down on top of him. 
Unfortunately, we don't get to see if the others had similar acts of valour, so Wendell goes down to the crossbows, as does Donald Locke and Owen Norrie. Robin Flint dies amongst rising and falling daggers, which immediately makes me think of Jory. And we only need to look at these surnames to see the similarities between those who died amongst Rob and those who died in front of Eddard at the Tower of Joy. Entire generations of families wiped out by different wars, but we'll come back to talk about that at a later time. Lucas Blackwood is cut down too, with only Daisy Mormont surviving long enough to even run for the door, where the full planning becomes obvious as Ryman Frey walks in in full armour and kills Daisy as well. Catelyn screams for mercy, but it's clear we are long past that, and it does no good for Daisy. By then, men were pouring in the other doors as well, mailed men in shaggy fur cloaks with steel in their hands. Northmen! She took them for rescue for half a heartbeat, till one of them struck the small John's head off with two huge blows of his axe. Hope blew out like a candle in a storm. In the midst of slaughter, the Lord of the Crossing sat on his carved oaken throne, watching greedily. So the scale of the betrayal becomes clear, and again, Catelyn is wise enough to instantly know this means they are truly doomed. Let us salute small John Umber, who did all he could to save Rob's life. And even if Catelyn doesn't point it out, we can assume Roose is now entering the room, having retrieved his men, and that the worst of the danger has been handled by the crossbows. How very Roose of him. Now let us return to what Catelyn has been up to, because it deserves to be recognised. We learnt, way back at the beginning of Game of Thrones, this is a woman who will fight tooth and nail to the death for her children if needs be. And as she did with the cat's paw, she fights here. When she feels Edwin Frey's mail, she doesn't gasp in horror. She full on slaps him so hard she draws some much needed Frey blood. When she sees Rob hit by quarrels, she doesn't cry out on terror, but runs towards him until she herself is taken down by a bolt. And then she is forced to watch the deaths of all those we just described, interspersed with the lyrics of the reigns of Castamere, because George loves a bit of cinematic writing, does he not? Finally, even with a clear injury and all help gone, Catelyn drags herself across the floor to a knife, already electing for vengeance if nothing else is available to her, not so different from a certain daughter who's nine million miles away. Lord Walder raised a hand, and the music stopped, all but one drum. Catelyn heard the crash of distant battle, and closer, the wild howling of a wolf. Grey wind, she remembered too late. Eh, Lord Walder crackled at Rob. The king of the north arises. Seems we killed some of your men, your grace. Oh, but I'll make you an apology. That will mend them all again, <laughs> When we get the pause in the action, we find two things. Firstly, we were correct, Catelyn does hear Grey Wind, so sorry, Ghost of High Heart. And those sounds of battle obviously tell us others are being dealt with, either in the castle or out in the camps. And secondly, that Walder Frey, in the middle of delighting in slaughter, honestly has based much of his decision on pure pettiness and childishness. He, at the end of the day, is really no different to big and little Walder playing at a game up at Winterfell. That's the reason for all this tragedy. Now that does ignore the larger social context of Frey versus Tully and Tywin and Roose's parts in this, but within this scene specifically, it's what it boils down to. A 90-year-old man acting like his preteen relatives. All of this is just a long, drawn-out Walder Frey tantrum. The drum went boom, doom, boom, doom, boom, doom. Please, she said. He is my son, my first son and my last. Let him go. Let him go and I swear we will forget this. Forget all you have done here. I swear it by the old gods and the new. We we will take no vengeance. Lord Wald appeared at her in mistrust. Only a fool would believe such blather. Do you take me for a fool, my lady? I take you for a father. Keep me for a hostage. Edmure as well if you haven't killed him. But let Rob go. Importantly, by this point, Rob has emerged from Small John's table shield and is alive for now. Hence, Catelyn goes into bargaining mode. If she can't fight, fine. She'll offer up anything else she can to save Rob. Even if that includes imprisonment, rape, her death, as she tells us in a moment. None of that matters to her if there's even the slightest hope to save Rob. But there are tragedies wrapped up in this quote. Firstly, it's her stating that Rob is both her first and last son. We know Catelyn is going to die believing Bran, Rickon, and essentially Aya and Sansa are all either dead or essentially dead. 
Eddard is already gone, Hoster too, and for all she knows, Edmure as well. Rob is everything. Life itself has stood right in front of her, so no wonder she offers up anything she can to try and keep that alive. Does she act differently if she still believes Bran or Rickon or Aya to be alive? Ultimately, though, I don't think so. She probably still offers her life in the same way she did for Bran when she grabbed that Valerian steel dagger, but she would at least view that act differently. The second tragedy is that she's forced to try and deal with a man for whom promises and sons obviously mean nothing. It doesn't matter that Catelyn is swearing both by her beloved Seven and the old northern gods that always seem so strange to her, because Walder doesn't put any stock in words, and crucially, as we'll see in a moment when Catelyn offers a son for a son in regards to Jingle Bell, he doesn't put any stock in sons either. Catelyn sees her entire world when she looks at Rob. Walder Frey just sees a number when he looks at Jingle Bell. They do not have the same values. Her bargain cannot reach him. There is nothing to be done. And that doom, boom, while okay, being there physically also exists entirely within Catelyn's mind as well. Again, Migraine Crew will tell you that is exactly how a heartbeat can sound within someone's own skull. It's almost as if her heart is measuring out what little life she has left. Jane? Rob grabbed the edge of the table and forced himself to stand. Mother, he said. Greywind. Go to him. Now, Rob, walk out of here. Again, at the very end, Catelyn just wants her son to live. But we know these are the last words Rob Stark will ever speak as he ticks off the loves that still remain to him. And of course, the inclusion of Greywind's name is the bedrock for a good number of theories, but I think also serves on several other levels. We could look at it as Rob retracing all the clues in his mind and realising he should have listened to Greywind. Well, my preference is to believe the emotional connection between the two is on fire in this second, either because Greywind knows Rob is about to die, or because Rob is feeling Greywind die in this very moment. Perhaps even both. And here, the end of the slide. A man in dark armour and a pale pink cloak spotted with blood stepped up to Rob. Jamie Lannister sends his regards. He thrust his longsword through her son's heart and twisted. And here I have to pause and gather myself a little bit as Catelyn Tully's world snaps at the same time as her mind. She loses her mind in this single instant as she murders an innocent jingle bell with the sound of little bells mixed with her inner doom and boom. It's a difficult subject to explore because this is clearly an evil act to murder jingle bell who obviously had no part in what was being done to her family but who among us can honestly say we wouldn't act in the exact same way in that moment? Yes, it's the symbol of revenge being top priority for the stone heart she will become, but more importantly, it's about Catelyn proving she will keep her word. She will keep to that honour, that binding agreement of society, just as her son did, because the men who have killed her son did not. She has to be better than them in her final moments. But of course, that might be wishful thinking on our part, because Catelyn has clearly lost her mind already. Let's see if I can make it through this quote. The tears burned like vinegar as they ran down her cheeks. Ten fierce ravens were raking her face with sharp talons and tearing off strips of flesh, leaving deep furrows that ran red with blood. She could taste it on her lips. It hurts so much, she thought. Our children, Ned, all our sweet babes. Rickon, Bran, Aya, Sansa, Rob. Rob, please, Ned, please make it stop. Make it stop hurting. The white tears and the red ones ran together until her face was torn and tattered the face that Ned had loved. I'm not even really going to try and comment on this so much as I am just, just going to share it with you. Callan does not even retain enough of her mind to realising it's her own hands tearing at her face. Note that she never focuses on physical pain. Her heart and mind have broken so much, the world as she knows it is so shattered, there's nothing to do but just claw at her own face as if she's trying to sever her connection with this world that hurts so much. It is, inarguably, heartbreaking. Yeah, it gets even worse as she begins talking to Ned, and again there is the tragedy of her believing all her children have gone, even when they've not. Callan obviously plays the mother role throughout her Song of Ice and Fire journey, and it's to that she returns now. 
but that is gone in her mind and there is nothing left but to ask for the pain to stop hurting. So now we end with this, a line that undoubtedly, in my mind, is the most harrowing and haunting and emotion-inducing in all of the Song of Ice and Fire and almost all literature that I've come across. Here we go. No, don't. Don't cut my hair. Ned loves my hair. Then the steel was at her throat and its bite was red and cold. I have a thousand thoughts and one about this line, but it's so intense and so emotional, I'm not even going to try and get them across to you. Like I say, I have to imagine it feels the same for all of you anyway. What I will do is tell you to go and listen to Radio Restoration's Catlin episode, because Lady Gwen does a much better, more emotional reading than I just did there. If you really want to get the waterworks going, go and listen to that episode. Either way, there we have it. We've spent a good long time on this chapter now, so I'll leave thoughts of what all this means and the larger scale of things for the Freys, the Boltons, the North, for Gestrite itself, until a later time, but I do just want to focus on Catelyn again just for a mere second. I know as soon as I stop talking and finish this podcast I'll think of a million better things to say or better ways to say them, but such is my love for this character. It's never going to be contained in a single paragraph. This is such an emotional chapter and ending, but it doubles up for many of us because it's a goodbye to our favourite personal POV in the series, and definitely my personal favourite POV in Catelyn. And to be honest, it's not all that close. I really like her a lot more than I like most of the others. I'm not going to try and quantify and explain that now. It's too close to the reading of this chapter at the moment. Perhaps I will come back to it at a later date, but for now, I just want to salute Catelyn Stark slash Tully. I feel so much more connected to her emotions and actions than I do any other. I want to highlight her bravery, her spirit, her love for her children and family, and all that she tried to do to save that family. She's not perfect, not by far, but that's partly why I love her. I guess I just bow down to the mother here as we wave goodbye to not just the character, but her plot line with Rob and this Riverlands War as well. Here's hoping we soon get to see Lady Stoneheart find peace, and if we're incredibly lucky, the fact that her children still live. Farewell, Catelyn. Speaking of children who live, at least for a little while, let's go to I-11. Okay, so somehow, after all that emotional charge and gigantic upheaval in terms of overall plot and the expected direction of the series, remember we don't only lose that cool battle from Oak Caelan that Rob promised, but now it seems the entire North is lost and the eventual vengeance and return home that almost all first-time readers expected has now been torn to shreds. How many read Catelyn 7? Sobbed for a while and then wondered, okay, so now what the hell do we do? Anyway, after all of that, George just slams us right back into tension land as we suddenly remember, oh, Aya's there too. We forgot about Aya. And who can blame us given what we just read? No rest, no chance for reflection. George is not done with our heartstrings just yet. And honestly, has there ever been a moment where we are given more reason to think a POV slash top tier character is about to meet their end, aside from the prologue and epilogues, obviously? With Ned, it was such a surprise it didn't make sense, but now we've just seen Rob and Catelyn both go down at the same time, so it'd be perfectly reasonable to expect we're about to see the majority of the house end together. Would George be cruel enough to make us watch young Aya walk into her death, expecting to find her mother's waiting arms? Would he even make Aya see the corpses? After Catelyn 7, anything goes, it would seem. The light shone dully against the wet mail on helms. More torches were moving on the dark stone bridge that joined the twins, a column of them streamed from the west bank to the east. We begin with Aya seeing and yet not seeing. Her excitement over the possibility of seeing Catelyn and Rob is overriding those senses, especially given that she believes it all to be too good to be true. She can't yet make the connection of what that actually means. Luckily, she happens to be in the company of a seasoned soldier who absolutely knows a charge when he sees it and manages to get them out of the way just in time. And note that while Aya's serial sight is not in working at the moment, the more physical lessons such as landing are so intuitive that she does them naturally. Before we get to the devastating charge and the battle that is no battle at all, we have this from Aya. Somewhere far off she heard a wolf howling, 
It wasn't very loud compared to the camp noise and the music and the low ominous growl of the river running wild, but she heard it all the same. Only maybe it wasn't her ears that heard it. The sound shivered through Aya like a knife, sharp with rage and grief. Again we have the river being compared to a growl and linked to Greywind himself, so I see why so many people believe he was able to jump in, but ignoring that, what is absolutely key is even Aya, who knows absolutely zilch about the potential connection between Starks and Direwolves, thinks she might be feeding Greywind rather than physically hearing him. Although again, sorry Ghost of High Heart, he was definitely heard. And of course, she feels the rage, the grief that Greywind feels about not being able to help his beloved Rob. But there's no time to focus on that because the Frey's incredible plan we outlined earlier is being enacted, and it's even worse than we originally thought. She saw that there were only two of the huge feast tents where once there had been three. The one in the middle had collapsed. For a moment she did not understand what she was seeing. Then the flames went licking up from the fallen tent, and now the other two were collapsing, heavy oil cloths settling down on the men beneath. A flight of fire arrows streaked through the air. The second took fire, and then the third. The screams grow so loud she could hear words through the music. So on top of everything we said earlier, there's now this horrible, horrible audition of oil cloth coming down on you, and just darkness suddenly enveloping you as fire starts licking up, and just, uh, oh, uh, it's just horrible to imagine. And it's also a kind of mirror back to Aya's earlier chapter where she watched fire arrows streak through to the sectary for the brotherhood so that's just a weird mirror there but yeah it's awful Aya calls it a battle but we know it never reaches anything near that level and through it all the reins of Castamere drifts out declaring to the world that this is a night of evil and actually it's pretty fitting the song was formed around a horrific slaughter from Tywin where he trapped and drowned hundreds of people trapping hundreds of people and having them burnt alive is quite the comparison I mentioned earlier in the book there was an odd choice for Tom of Sevens to sing that particular song but it does serve its purpose in that Aya recognises it immediately now. Perhaps it will turn out to be important in her future as well. When a free phrase detached to come after Aya and the Hound, it is a tug on the heartstrings that the lyrics of the song filter through all the action in the exact same way it did in Catelyn's mind a few minutes ago. First we get some super stranger action, but then Aya suddenly confuses her feelings over Sadok again. He's the bad guy, right? He killed Micah. The phrase are friends, they're sworn to her brother. But like Syria taught her long with a lesson about a fat cat and bravos, Opening your eyes is all that's needed. The Freys are charging towards her with weapons drawn, whereas Sandor stood between her and them, so she correctly chooses who to throw her rock at. And being able to stop a charge with a rock is no joke, even if Sandor does have to come save her afterwards. Remember last time out when we mentioned that Sandor was injured, had been sleeping rough, was probably under-eating, before they got a hold of this cart anyway. Well, he just dunked on three fully armoured and prepared knights. Just goes to show how good of a fighter Sandor Kagane actually is. And he also kills a guy via the neck because of a broken gorget, just like his brother did in the tawny of the hand a billion years ago. Get my helm, Clegane growled at her. It was stuffed at the bottom of a sack of dried apples in the back of the wain behind the pickled pig's feet. I upended the sack and tossed it to him. He snatched it one-handed from the air and lowered it over his head, and where the man had sat, only a steel dog remained, snarling at the fires. So as well as being just a beautiful line at the end there, I really like this exchange, I think, as he's got to this note. Aya is essentially acting as Sandor's squire, and she would have made a perfect squire in a different world, but can't be one here because of her gender. But that's okay, because Sandor again is not a knight either, so it all fits, we've got two outcasts here. We're also getting just the slightest hint of what this relation could have been if these two didn't have such a history between them. Sandor, being Sandor, doesn't hold back when he tells her what he thinks of all this in regards to Rob's health, but Aya can't accept that. No, not after all she's been through to get here, not now when she's so close. How can that be what happens? Rob's just in the castle. And my mother. The gate's even open. There were no more frays riding out. I came so far. We have to go get my mother. Turning around now, giving up hope and abandoning her family, it just isn't something Aya can do. And obviously her emotions and concern are so high right now, she doesn't even realise what Sandor is saying. 
Come with me. Sandor again reached down a hand. We have to get away from here, and now. We should focus in on it, though. Although there is the element that Sandor doesn't want to lose his lone meal ticket, he's also trying to save a young girl from carnage and keep her away from harm, just as he did with the other Stark sister. We'll come back to this in a moment. Aya hears the music cease and that boom-doom drum begin, telling us that at this very moment, her mother and brother are dying just across the bridge. Meanwhile, Sandor gives Aya a choice to live or risk it all for her family, and even manages to act like he doesn't care. Yet when she does choose, he still gives chase. And Aya ran, not for her brother now, not even for her mother, but for herself. She ran faster than she had ever run before, her head down and her feet churning up the river. She ran from him as Micah must have run. His axe took her in the back of the head. So we come to the end of our four Red Renning chapters. I have to say, I don't think I ever fully appreciated the repeated imagery of Aya running from the Hound as Micah once did. It's a beautiful callback and also makes us look at the difference in Sandor. Once he rode his horse to kill a child, now he does so to save one. But I also have to say, I never saw this as the cliffhanger that many others apparently did. I never assumed that Sandor killed Aya here, even though George does clearly write it in a way that's supposed to make you think that she's died. Like we said earlier, it would certainly fit. But given that earlier sentence of him trying to save her, it just never landed that way for me. I do think at some point, likely on her eventual return to the Riverlands, Aya might realise Sandor's role in saving her life on this day. Clearly, for the rest of this novel, she's in far too raw a place to be thinking of such. But I think it's coming, just to confuse their relationship even more. Either way, there closes the Red Wedding. Farewell, Death Slide. Okay, we've still got one to go here. We need a little bit of a roundup, a little bit of a cooldown, I think. So let's go over to King's Landing for Tyrion 6. Now I think Aziz might have got to this, so I apologise for repeating, but I'm going to read this one out anyway. How in the hell do you follow all that? I would imagine the vast majority of readers, especially first-timers, would have had to put the book down for at least a little while after that. I, I still certainly have to. But either way, this is still a huge change in whatever chapter George chose to place directly after his grand event. It could have been expected for him to place a Daenerys or Sam chapter here, something as far off as disconnected as you can get in order to let that impact sink in, even a John or Bran considering they'd have no way of finding out about it. Instead, George elects to have a chapter of the most emotional and informational fallout of any POV other than being inside Sansa's head when she hears the news. At least we are spared that, I don't know if I could bear it. But we are given as much follow-up as is really possible, and we can now begin with our horrible realisation this has actually all happened and can see the larger effects on the world. Now in terms of what's going to happen for the rest of this book, it's quite important that we get a King's Landing chapter because it is going to be very King's Landing based until the end of Storm of Swords. It's taken this long to get to six Tyrion chapters, but here in the last 20 or so to go, we're going to have five more, so his, his frequency is really going to jump up, as well as a couple of Sansas before she leaves. Like we said a few weeks ago, it's so strange to think of Tyrion and King's Landing taking a backseat up until this point, but now we get the payback. In quick succession, we'll have the Purple Wedding, Sansa's escape, Tyrion's trial, the trial by combat, and then Tyrion's own escape. There's a lot to fit in, and from here the pace really goes into breakneck. This chapter serves as that gate opening, and we'll go from there. But the chapter itself doesn't open at speed. We've had enough of a rush, so we switch from murder, betrayal, and battle and slaughter to an awkward, quiet dinner. Almost as opposite to the Red Wedding as you could get. Oddly enough, I'm pretty sure this is the first time we've seen Tyrion and Sansa together since their wedding, which seems an absolute age ago to me anyway. But we instantly find out they've not found how to interact with each other, as this conversation just travels from awkward to more awkward. Instead, Tyrion uses it as an, as an opportunity to update us on the situation in the city, focusing in on the tension between Martell and Tyrell men. Given Oberyn's eventual fate, this tension is a bit of a non-starter to be honest, but it does renew our interest into what's going on in the city and the idea that something will soon boil over. 
They then switch over to Sansa's now nightly visits to the Godswood, and we can probably guess what great news that is for Dontos. Though I assume they're probably not specifically meeting each night or someone would be bound to notice eventually. More than likely, Dontos is just part of the package deal that Sansa has to put up with if she wants to visit her one safe place, her one connection to her home and her family, and especially her father. And crucially, it's a place without Lannisters, essentially the only place now. Tyrion makes what is likely his 50th attempt in trying to make a connection to his wife, but instead we see Sansa react quickly, too quickly, some might say, giving us readers a little treat in knowing something that Tyrion doesn't when he offers to go to the godswood with her. I wouldn't have been so quick to let Joffrey fling the antlermen over the walls if I'd known how many of the bloody bastards had taken loans from the crown. Just after Sansa leaves and before Tyrion heads off to a meeting, we get a quick paragraph on Littlefinger and his tricks with the accounts. So we continue with the theme of earlier planted problems going back to haunt Tyrion with the Antlermen, a theme that will soon come to a head at Tyrion's trial. And there's the added irony of the Antlermen not even really being a problem of Tyrion's, but something he allowed Joffrey to deal with himself. And so of course they all ended up dead because we know Joffrey. Again, something we will see going forward. Tyrion's mistakes coming home to Roof, Joffrey's mistakes coming home to Roof, but Tyrion catching all the flack. But all of that is a mere intro to the point of this chapter, a small council meeting in the Tower of the Hand, Though Tyrion does raise our eyebrows before he leaves, leaving the possibility of fetching Sansa from the godswood and maybe catching her in the act for the first time reader just to worry about there. Before we get to the content of the meeting, let's take a bit of a meta look at the status of the small council overall. What started off as strictly professional small council meetings during Ned's time, then morphed into Tyrion versus Ciri in Tyrion's time, and is now essentially just a family meeting plus Pycelle, a famous Lannister toady, during Tywin's time. The point being, the council has just become a family meetup, and the aspects of being a true council have been forgotten for a little while. Don't worry, we do get Cersei's hilarious attempts at running her own meetings soon enough in Feast. And we now get to see the deep-run issues of the Lannister family come to the surface. We are allowed our deepest look at that ineptitude of the family, and the kind of disaster that can result when you let that sort of dysfunction near positions of power and responsibility. And again, there are so many Lannisters taking up so many positions here, that you can see why Cersei suddenly sees enemies on all sides, when suddenly there are none but her, despite that being very much her own choice. As it happens, Tyrion catches the family on perhaps its best day in years. Joffrey was almost bouncing, and Cersei was savouring a smug little smile, though Lord Tywin looked grim as ever. Tyrion, being a smart man, instantly knows that something big has clearly happened to incite such a reaction in his family, and we find out George is allowing us no time off as we get the opportunity to decipher Walder Frey's message for ourselves. The Lannisters fall perfectly into their precast moulds in their reactions, Joffrey's pure emotion, all cocky teenage prize, as, as if he himself had anything to do with this. Cersei is classically confident that none now dare oppose them, while Tywin is not even close to celebrating and keeps it all business. Tyrion, in fairness to him, immediately thinks of how this will affect poor Sansa and the unfairness of life that he knows so well. Here's a quote from Tywin. Riverrun remains, but so long as Walder Frey holds Edmure Tully hostage, the Blackfish dare not mount a threat. Jason Manister and Titus Blackwood will fight on for honour's sake, but the phrase can keep the Manises penned up at Seaguard, and with the right inducement, Jonas Bracken can be persuaded to change his allegiance and attack the Blackwoods. In fairness to Tywin, despite his evilness, he does know his country well, because this is pretty dead on for what happens. So, point to Tywin here. Even if he does use this little victory to sneak in that he's taken Harrenhal back from Vargo Hope with whatever violence necessary. Tywin is clearly not the sort to accept Vargo becoming a lord. He's the hired help. That alone would probably be enough to earn him a death sentence, even without all the Jamie stuff to come. Joffrey, being Joffrey, wants to show off his true colours as much as everyone else. Like the toddler he is, Joff is overstimulated. He needs a nap. Someone let him in the sugar again. He doesn't want leniency. He wants to kill as many enemies as possible. He wants violence to the extreme because, Cer because he's Cersei's son and he simply cannot imagine a larger 
a larger political picture as Tywin has demonstrated he can. Indeed, Joff lets his base cruelty out to play by somehow being even more despicable than usual and wanting to serve Sansa Rob's head, leading to the first of our two big key conflicts in this chapter. Yes, I did, Joffrey insisted. He was a traitor, and I want his stupid head. I'm going to make Sansa kiss it. No, Tyrion's voice was hoarse. Sansa is no longer yours to torment. Understand that, monster. Joffrey sneered. You're the monster, uncle. Am I? Tyrion cocked his head. Perhaps you should speak to me softly, then. Monsters are dangerous beasts, and just now kings seem to be dying like flies. Gloves off already. Yeah, we like it. We can immediately see that Tyrion is not holding back anymore. The fact that this is being said in front of Cersei does not faze him despite all the threats that she's made and enacted against him in the past. Even Tywin's presence, incredibly important as the man Tyrion now derives all power from, doesn't stop him. It's obvious that the rift between he and Joffrey at the wedding has been festering ever since and the rotten relationship between nephew and uncle has really jumped forward in terms of ferocity. While the drama of the chapter has already jumped up pretty high, it's also a useful reminder that hey, Stannis threw three leeches into that fire, not two. Joffrey's time certainly looks likely to come, and the first time reader might even think that Tyrion will be the one to end him. Mwahaha, <laughs> George and his irony. We know how Joffrey reacts when he is personally threatened or challenged, we saw it at the wedding, and we see it here as Joffrey continues to place himself high above the rest of humanity because he is the king. But this proclamation annoys Tywin far more than any threat of Tyrion's could, leading to one of his more oft-quoted passages. Be quiet, Cersei. Joffrey, when your enemies defy you, you must serve them steel and fire. When they go to their knees, however, you must help them back to their feet. Elsewise, no man will ever bend the knee to you, and any man who must say, I am the king, is no true king at all. Ares never understood that, but you will. When I've won your war for you, we will restore the king's peace and the king's justice. So we can tell, Tywin has had it up to here of his descendants. He's been busy pulling off a hugely complex military and political deal that completely shifts the tone of the war and their chances for survival, while his spoilt offspring continue sniping at each other. But hence the much enjoyed telling Cersei to be quiet, as if she's no older than her son. More than that, we can see that Tywin is generally trying to teach Joffrey here, but also that this can be our marker of Tywin finally admitting what he's actually got in Joffrey. For Tywin of all people to be busting out the comparisons to Ares is quite telling. And again, to be fair, he is trying to impart some actual wisdom on Joffrey here. But then again, being Tywin, he can't resist giving himself a good old ego boost at the end, and reminding who has been sitting around doing nothing, and who has actually been doing the ruling. In the past, this cowing would have been enough, but Joffrey is growing both in age and in hubris, and he's just suffered a slight from Tyrion. He can't take two ego bruises in a row, so he comes back with this. The boy surprised them all. Instead of scuttling safely back under his rock, Joff drew himself up defiantly and said, You talk about Ares' grandfather, but you were scared of him. Again, family dynamics rule this council meeting, but this moment is a fan favourite, mainly because we see Cersei's oh shit reaction when she realises what Joffrey has just done. Instead of listening to his mother or taking the warning glare Tywin gives out, Joffrey doubles down because teenage boys are built for the sole purpose of trying to take on their elders. It's just that Joffrey is worse at it than everyone else. Tywin's response is just as classic, calm, measured and with deadly with precision. Obviously Tywin is his own monster who will soon be burning in multiple hells, but if you are forced to pick a scene where you enjoy seeing him work, then this is the clear choice. Tywin doesn't bellow, he doesn't bear steel. Instead he chooses to display what he's just been talking about by ordering Pycelle and Kevin and ignoring Joffrey completely. To a spoilt boy like Joff, not getting attention is the very worst, most angering thing imaginable, but it's wonderful to see play out. Kevin and Pycelle hop to attention as quickly as possible, and true power is displayed in front of her eyes as her king is sent to bed and Cersei is left gabbering apologies and shirking responsibility as quickly as she can. I can't help but laugh at Cersei immediately blaming Robert for all Joffrey's faults. 
I say this is 50% her wanting to shift blame onto someone who can't defend themselves and probably 50% her being honest because there's no way she thinks she's had anything to do with Joffrey's problems. Either way, this interaction between Tywin and Cersei is very telling as we can see his annoyance at not being delivered the grandson and king he was promised and he ends up dismissing her with no more kindness than he did Joffrey. I also love that Tywin cites Cersei's poor mothering as the reason for Joffrey turning out like he did whilst obviously not paying attention to his own part in why Cersei turned out like she did. Classic Tywin. Another quote. Not Robert II, Tyrion said. Ares III. The boy is 13. There is time yet. Lord Tyrion paced to the window. That was unlike him. He was more upset than he wished to show. As terrible as witnessing the Red Wedding was, at least we were being rewarded with seeing an actually uncomfortable Tywin. Again, I think it's settling in just what Joffrey actually is, and what should be a huge victory now doesn't seem so sweet. Tyrion certainly hits the nail on the head with his remark, but he also immediately worries what a sharp lesson from Tywin might consist of, because no one knows better than he, and it is certainly a concerning thought, even when the target is Joffrey. Unfortunately, immediately following this, Tyrion doesn't paint himself in the best of lights to the fandom, because he reveals that upon learning the news of a horrific slaughter of his, wife family, of his wife's family, the thing he's focusing on is his annoyance that he didn't get to be part of it, and his jealousy that Cersei might have been. It's really, really not a good look. A clear need for ego appeasement, along with trying to keep his neck above Cersei on the pecking order. Court games at its very highest, when we've just had to witness tragic family love at its very highest. Yeah, not, not a good look, Tyrion. Tyrion quickly wants to get off the subject and onto something else, which reads slightly suspicious to me. Why is it that he's wanting to move on so quick? I doubt he's concerned about being involved in the whole guest right thing. Perhaps his own ego is bruised about having to go the underhanded route. Perhaps he hates that he had to rely on others to get the job done. Maybe he just wanted a situation where he'd get more of the public credit. Either way, Tyrion returns the chapter to the Martells for a second, and with Tyrion continuing to be petulant. The conversation about Oberyn quickly turns into one about Gregor, as Tywin tries to justify completely reneging on the deal made with Dawn and Doran simply because it now suits their needs to keep Gregor around. This is the kind of Lannister exceptionalism we've come to expect from Tywin. Outright lies, going back on a deal, all of these are perfectly legal as long as they are in service to House Lannister, apparently. It's a short quote. So Gregor is certainly not about to confess to him. I mean to keep him well away for as long as the Dornish men are in King's Landing. This is pretty interesting, given what Gregor will say to Oberyn during the trial, and the fact that Gregor was there at all. Does Cersei summon him without Tywin's consent? We'll have to keep a lookout for that, as I don't remember the answer right now. The talk takes on a much more interesting note when it turns to the historical, as Tywin offers his views and explanation for what happened during the sack of King's Landing. We had come late to Robert's cause. It was necessary to demonstrate our loyalty. When I laid those bodies before the throne, no man could doubt that we had forsaken House Targaryen forever. Given that we've had way, way more stuff about the relationship between Tyrion and Tyrion, and to be fair, it's clear that that is the more important relationship, I continue to see George setting up more and more about the relationship between Tyrion and Jaime, given that their first meeting is coming soon. And like I said, this is their first meeting, this isn't the show. This will be the first time we ever see Jaime and his father on page together, I'm pretty sure, so that's kind of mind-blowing. In this chapter's case, it's Tyrion thinking on the taking of the Red Keep during the Rebellion, something that Jaime has obviously been focusing on every day since. Specifically, Tywin refers to Elia's death as accidental and admits the whole thing was purely to get in Robert's good books and erase the memory that he had sat on the fence for the whole war. Let's just repeat that. Tywin ordered grown men to horrifically murder a baby and a toddler merely so he could get in good with the new boss. Even his admittance that Elia didn't need to die comes off as cruel and detached because he seems to speak about it in the same way normal people might speak about spilling a drink. Yeah, it's annoying, but he's not losing sleep over it. He simply does not care. The reverse of Jamie is that the act his father can barely be bothered to care about is still a huge stain on Jamie's conscience, a moral horror that he can't escape from. We've seen it in his waking memory, we've seen it in his weird dream where Rhaegar charges him with the crime of not protecting his wife and children. 
Jamie battles about what was the right thing to do with an evil king you were sworn to serve, about which oaths should have been followed. But I think what rots it in most is that he let in the men who did those horrible things to her mother and her children. I grant you, it was done too brutally. Elia need not have been harmed at all. That was sheer folly. By herself, she was nothing. Then why did the mountain kill her? Because I did not tell him to spare her. I doubt I mentioned her at all. I had more pressing concerns. Uh, you think you've always heard the worst of Tywin, and it comes out with stuff like this. The whole shirking for responsibility about not telling Gregor to rape her, as if that means ordering child murder is okay by comparison, only goes to show us that Tywin is either too stupid or more likely unwilling to learn any lessons about what it is to unleash a monster. Tywin knew what Gregor was capable of. Tywin sent Gregor out into the Riverlands regardless. And by the by, while we're here, let's address the fact that it was because Elia was a woman that Tywin was so careless about her safety. We've got plenty of other examples of his misogyny after all. Let's just imagine it's Oberyn or Duran stuck in that tower with two children. I'm going to guess Tywin is way more instructive about what is to be done with them than he was with Elia. The sheer callousness of his not mentioning her, of having more pressing concerns, can really make a reader feel sick. I want to hone in on a specific line here. It's, heroes do not kill children. It's a fascinating line to come from Tywin specifically because it allows direct comparison to Ned, whose whole, whose whole arc followed so closely to how devastating the death of children can be. The difference is, Ned didn't see it as heroic to not kill children. He saw it as the baseline of morality. No one should kill children whether they consider themselves heroic or not. Whereas Tywin is coming at this from a cynical angle, an almost nihilistic angle, that you could see Tyrion coming up with in Dance. He's mocking the idea of heroes not killing children, in the same way someone might be chided for not getting their hands dirty. It's Tywin painting himself as pragmatic and master of the bottom line, as a necessity that kings and heroes need to get things done. Obviously, Eddard took the opposite approach, that the crime of murdering someone like Micah is the same as murdering someone like Princess Rhaenys. Neither are excusable for any reason. It also provides a nice bookend to Robert's career as king. Back in the day, he still vaguely cared about image and maybe even the job itself, so didn't want to mar himself with ordering Targaryens dead. By the end, he didn't care two bits about ordering a child murdered. True, Daenerys is 13 and not a newborn, but as Ned made clear, there's no distinction. The only counterpoint to that is, is that the Rainey's Aegon thing was public in the throne room, whereas I'm not sure it's ever made public knowledge that A, Daenerys was active and alive, and B, Robert had ordered her death, but I'm really splitting hairs here. So much for a guest, right? The blood is on Walder Frey's hands, not mine. So again with the responsibility shirking, Tywin is convinced he has done nothing wrong, and though he's the last person to be worrying about moral curses, he's made sure he has plausible deniability by zeroing in on technicalities. He didn't personally raise a sword, or actually speak any order to do so, so he can't be accused of having broken the rules. It's his very own mayhap situation. Final quote for this chapter, another famous one. Explain to me why it's more noble to kill 10,000 men in battle than a dozen at dinner. Another line that's been analysed many, many times, and another clear example of Tywin putting his blinkers on. Did a dozen die at the Red Wedding? No, thousands did. We've just seen them die horrible deaths in chaotic, blazing tents or getting stabbed by people they fought with friends. Tywin completely misses the point, but that suits his character perfectly. To him, the men in the camps aren't people. They, they just don't count. He doesn't care for them. He care only slightly more for someone like Daisy Mormont, and of course, he doesn't see the problem of calling what happened to Rob and Catelyn ignoble. While all are recovering from the huge waves the Red Wedding caused, we get a doubling down on Tywin's complete attachment from all humanity as this chapter ends. We've just had it with Elia, with the majority of the people who died at the Twins, and we see it at the closing sentence with his inability to see or care about Sansa's reaction, and again essentially telling his son that consent is completely irrelevant. We spoke up at the top about why this chapter was specific follow the Red Wedding, and I think the answer is now clear. To show us the true face of evil to go along with Walder Frey and Rhys Bolton, 
the man who arranged it all with the coldest, most uncaring heart alive. At least that won't be the situation for too much longer. And there we have it, ladies and gentlemen. That is Red Wedding Week. That is A Storm of Swords, part 11. And you probably hear my voice. It's a bit of a toiling episode, so I won't keep you much longer here. It's also a very long episode, so I've got a lot of editing to do. Six chapters there. There will be four next week to counteract that. Uh, I'm not going to bring them up for you now. Just uh, tune in like you normally do. Sundays for Aziz and Asher, History of Westeros. Patrons, Monday for us and Tuesday, Public Release. There will be a new episode of Sporkle Spectacular coming this Thursday with very, very special guest Lauren, aka Shakes of Thrones. You'll enjoy that. That will raise your spirits. I might go back and listen to it now after having to record this one. Like I say, get in your ideas for future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Do let us know if you are a key worker out there on the front lines. We'd love to show some appreciation. And please do go and check out all our halftime shoutouts of Vanessa Cole's Portrait of Daenerys, the new podcast Learned Kings, and Matt and Scad from Davos Fingers. I'm going to log off as quickly as I can now and get to editing. We will see you next week. Thank you, everyone.